This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luc Olivier Dumablet. And I'm Yannick Mignon. And I'm so happy that we're talking about this because you'll be so disappointed in me. I'm already <laughs> spoiling half of the show. But what's our topic with this week, Yannick? Game of the year 2022. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have some random come on the podcast and start talking about our reformed uh, rabbi, Bill Clinton, uh, out of nowhere. Um <laughs> Uh, I hope so not, but we never know. Somebody might just come up in our uh, line call, but I guess you'll have to listen to figure it out. But before we go into the main topic, we have some follow-up. My first item is literally related to uh, my previous episode, where I discussed the iPhone 14 Pro, but throughout this episode, I also mentioned uh, more or less my love of PDAs. And it seems that I, I miss when that got online. I guess uh, the, is the best way to say it. But uh, I'll have a link in the show notes from The Verge because if you're fond of Palm OS and you wish you could have a device that run Palm OS and a shit ton of third party apps and games or even first party apps too, you no longer need to. Scour, scour on eBay and then try to buy one at like $300 because that's the last one remaining on the planet. The Internet Archive has your pack. So you're not spending money for this holiday season and you can play Palm OS apps. They have uploaded a shit ton, 565 apps to be exact, that you can play in your browser by going to the Internet Archive website. So I have, I'll have a link in the show notes from this article from The Verge. Uh, and if you were like me, when I uh, last, I think it was this week that I ran into this uh, article, you lose at least an hour just going through the catalog <laughs> and playing with a couple of games. Um, it's funny because uh, the article is by uh, Sean Allister and he starts really talking about Dope Wars. I was like, what is Dope Wars? And I won't spoil it. Go figure it out. But I did play a couple of games of it uh, using the Eblumator on the Internet Archives website. I remember back when I had a Palm 3 that I was browsing the various app stores and app download websites for Palm OS. And Dope Wars was pretty much always on top of the leaderboards back in the day. Uh, and I noticed quite a few uh, classics from those days uh, on the Internet Archive as well. So if there's anything you fondly remember from the Palm days... Uh, you might find it there. You might also just be browsing through things and be reminded of stuff that you forgot about. Uh, so it's really neat uh, to go check that out. Uh, next up, I have some follow-up for episode 143, Steve Jobs fan, fan fiction about the potential fallout of the Epic Apple lawsuit. Uh, this week, unrelated to the Epic and Apple lawsuit, but vaguely related to the topics discussed on that episode, uh, we got some news that Apple is working to add sideloading and alternate app stores in Europe due to uh, upcoming EU legislation. Uh, we sort of wanted to bring it up during this episode mostly so that you know that we are aware of it and that we know that it is a topic that we both have very strong opinions about that we are going to discuss on an upcoming episode. Uh, but we don't have time this episode to do that because it's usually already one of the longest episodes of the year. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I can just scroll back into our line chat history and see all of the comments we made to each other about that, uh, that news. And I envisioned a great episode on that topic. Yeah, so uh, I'm sure you'll get to hear it in not too long. 
speaking of getting to hear the show in not too long, something that you forgot to mention as we entered the follow-up section, is that uh, this is the last episode uh, that we're going to be doing for a little while. We're going to be taking a brief holiday hiatus after this episode's release, and we're going to return with episode 197 on January 15th, 2023. So we'll see you in the next year. I was part. I was planning to include it in the outro, but oh, well, I'll okay. it there too. Sure, but I always imagine that people just cut the outro as soon as they start hearing that it's the outro because I do that. <laughs> oh come on! We usually have. We sometimes have good outros. So sometimes we I do. Guess, yeah, I guess it's our way to not skip the ads that we don't have. Sure. All right, game of the year. Uh, so this is an episode we've done uh, numerous times. I think you told me this is the fifth one that we've done. Uh, did I take note of it? I think so. Let me look. I think it's the fifth yes. one. Yeah. Yes, it is. It yeah. is. Uh, I have it in my notes. It is the fifth annual Game of the Year episode. Right. Uh, so if you've been a long-time listener of the show, you probably know how this goes by now, but um, every year as I play games, I rate them and I rank them from best to worst, and uh, he has his own methodology, which we'll probably get into later. <laughs> Hey, usually I do things, but certain years, <clears throat> like this year, um, other things happen. But that's that. Yeah, uh, we'll hear about it later. Uh, and, and yeah, as I read those games and everything, uh, usually I wait until I've played at least uh, 30% of the game or something to give them a rating, just so I've had a re- representative sample because I am incredibly bad at completing games and we'll talk about that later as well uh i also want to reduce recency bias in my own personal list so generally i only take into consideration games that i've played between uh october of the previous year and october of the current year so this is going to be october of 2021 to october of 2022 uh this is especially relevant for this year's episode because it means that ultimately there are going to be no switch games on my list or rather no games that i myself have experienced on switch uh though I'm going to tell you ahead of time that my January episode is going to be my early thoughts on owning a Switch. So you can look forward to that if you want to hear about uh, Switch ownership, how it's going on on my side. I'd like to note that I was not aware of that, so I'm also super excited about this. I think I've told you twice already, so... (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, if you did, and I forgot that kind of explains my week i think you even put it on your calendar which is i'm looking at my calendar now yes it's written exactly there you go wow okay yeah uh i had a big week that's but that's put this way so yeah uh this year uh something unprecedented happened well i guess for both of us something unprecedented has happened but uh my personal top four consists of entirely games that i would give five stars to which has never happened on a previous game of the year episode uh so We'll get wow, into that okay. in a little yeah. bit. Yeah, you five star. I, 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 oh my goodness, you're. Well, I have so much opinions this year. So much different opinion this year. I think <sighs> so. Yeah. Um, but first, uh, we always like to mention a few honorable mentions or uh, honorable disappointments of the year, uh, and I'm going to go through uh, a bunch of those before we get into the mm-hmm. proper uh, top four proper. Uh, so first of all is. Uh, last year's game of the year, Blaze Blue Central Fiction. Uh, it's obviously not going to be on my list for a second year in a row. Uh, but uh, if you remember when we recorded the last game of the year episode, I had a PC on the way specifically so I could play this game online with rollback netcode. And I'm still actively playing it and entering tournaments uh, on a regular basis. So I'm still enjoying that game. Uh, and I played 
quite a bit of it this year uh, because that was the whole point of buying the computer to play it. Uh, and I've, in my head, I've made up the cost of uh, buying the PC because I've played more games online that if I would convert that to the cost of arcade credits, I would have paid the same price as the PC. Uh, so I'm I, I'm net positive on that, <laughs> which is really cool. Uh, next game is Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart on the PS5. Uh, it just barely missed the cutoff for my list this year. It's literally number five in my overall 2022 game ranking. It's both a fantastic tech demo for the PS5 because of how adaptable Insomniac's engine is and an incredibly fun game, and Rivet is cute as fuck. Uh, so great game. Uh, check it out if you can. Worth mentioning that people should listen to your episode about the PS5 where you also uh, went into greater details about this game. Yes, and I believe there have been updates since that episode has been released to Reg and Clank Rift Apart that have made it an even better tech demo uh, as it has implemented a variable refresh rate and other stuff, other PS5 mm. features that have been patched in over time. Uh, so if you want to try basically every video feature that the PS5 has, you you should be getting Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart or one of the Marvel Spider-Man's games. Uh, next game was not originally going to be on this honorable mentions list until yesterday when Epic Games forced me to put it on here. Uh, it's Unreal Tournament 2004 for the PC. Uh, back in June, I organized a multiplayer game night for this because I bought all of the old Unreal Tournament games and I played them all and Unreal Tournament 2004 was by far the best uh, according to me, and I wanted to play it with actual people instead of just bots, so I invited a bunch of my friends, and we had a super cool deathmatch night. It was really, really fun. Uh, Epic Games announced yesterday that they're shutting down the server browser for all Unreal Tournament games, aside from Unreal Tournament 3, which is the only one they are going to be patching. Uh, Unreal Tournament 3X is going to be the, the re-released version of Unreal Tournament 3, uh, which is unfortunately the latest Unreal Tournament and also the worst Unreal Tournament. <laughs> um, but yeah, after January 24th, uh, if you have a copy of Unreal Tournament, uh, the server browser will no longer work, so you will need to know the IP address of servers in order to connect to them directly. So you're not completely screwed, but it is kind of a setback. Uh, and... Epic has delisted all of the older Unreal games from uh, online digital storefronts. It's kind of wild to me at a, preser uh, at a preservation level that they would choose to erase so much of the history of Unreal Engine when Unreal Engine has never been more relevant in the gaming industry this generation. Uh, it's kind of baffling and it's a kind of a bad sign, but they're fucking Fortnite Corp, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh and overall, I just really miss this entire era of online multiplayer first-person shooters a whole lot. And Unreal being a lot less accessible now means that a lot of people are going to have to gravitate towards Quake instead. And unfortunately, I'm more aligned with the values of Unreal Tournament than Quake. Uh, so it's going to be a bit more of a pain. Next game is another game whose servers went down this year. It's becoming pretty sad that this is becoming a recurring segment on the show uh this is on rush which was for ps4 it was an online only multiplayer arcade racing game reminiscent of burnout and ssx if they had a baby uh the game didn't sell particularly well at its launch but it was available on ps plus for a while and mm. I, I was terrified at the start of the year because of how unsuccessful it was that its servers would go offline this year. So I played it pretty early on in the year and I had a very, very good time with it. Uh, the servers went down a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so oh. uh, you, you can't play this anymore, uh, but it was great while it was there. 
So, so your hunch at the beginning of the year that it's time, your time with it was limited was a good hunch. And... Yes. And I still have other games on my shelf that I fear have a similar fate coming up. So I'm going to have to get to them in the next year, probably. Uh, notably, I have, I don't remember the year this came out, but the reboot for Need for Speed. Mm. that was just called need for speed on ps4 right I right i have that it's an online only game and servers are very likely to go down in the, in the next year uh, so i probably have to get that to that soon uh next game on my list is rage racer for the ps1 uh if you're a ridge racer fan uh you are no doubt uh aware of ridge racer type 4 everybody loves the ambience from uh ridge racer type 4 but I think Ridge Racer Type 4's reputation is so good that it has greatly overshadowed Rage Racer. Rage Racer's track design is absolutely awesome. It's, I actually think I prefer the tracks in Rage Racer to Ridge Racer Type 4. Uh, and then we can get into arguments about, well, Ridge Racer has the better lighting and cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's debatable, but I think Rage Racer needs a lot more appreciation and that's why I'm putting it here on my list. Uh, it gets very difficult uh, quite quickly, but otherwise it's very fun and a surprisingly beautiful arcade racer, especially considering how early it came out in the PlayStation 1's uh, lifespan. Next game, SD Gundam G Generation F. This is a PS1 Japanese-only strategy RPG that somehow contains playable retellings of almost every Gundam storyline in existence as of its release in 2000, which... I believe is 43 different pieces of Gundam media, either uh, seasons of television shows, movies, or uh, entire manga series. Uh, this is extremely, quote, educational for me uh, because Gundam is incredibly important to the history of the Wonderswan. And so I've been trying to get more educated about Gundam so that I can actually not be a complete loser in my videos about the wonder swan where i have to talk about gundam and uh, g generation has been a really fun way to do so uh so shout out to g generation and the next two are my honorable disappointments uh mm. so, so one of them is cyberpunk 2077 uh which i played on ps4 and ps5 uh currently it's kind of in a redemption arc because the netflix show is doing really really well and a lot of people went back to go and check it out uh and i think a lot more patches have come out that have made it less buggy, uh, but still mostly has the same content as it was before. Uh, when Wait, I'm... there was a Netflix show for it? Yes, and apparently it's very good. Uh, Cyberpunk huh. Edge Runners is the show. Uh, okay. And, and yeah, the, the show did so well that Cyberpunk sold really, really well and continues to be one of the top played games on Steam like every week since the show has come out. Wow. Uh, so it's doing remarkably well. Uh, the game to me is mostly fine, but nothing amazing. Uh, the first person shooting in this game kind of sucks, which sucks because I kind of built my character around excelling at first person combat and they still suck at it. So it's kind of, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't expecting destiny, but I was expecting something at least a little bit competent and it, it's not a very good shooter. It's more of a role playing game than a shooter, uh, in that respect. And I'm not really surprised, but I'm disappointed. Uh, I'm very interested and invested in like one or two characters, but I largely don't care about the rest of the game. Uh, but hey, I wanted to try it out. I gave it a shot and hey, it didn't work out as nicely as I thought, but uh, I still enjoyed my time with it, but it was not remarkable or anything. Uh, let's just say I was happy I played it and I was satisfied when I put down the game. And yeah, 
I don't really feel like I need to go back to it anytime soon. Uh, the next game, I'm I'm just going to say these two sentences and I'm not going to talk anymore about it. Gran Turismo 7, big disappointment <laughs> of the year. We did a whole episode and, a, and I even did a video about it, so I won't repeat myself too much, but it wasn't even on the top half of my list. Uh, so there you go. Hmm. Interesting. I'm a bit surprised it, it is an honorable uh, disappointment. <laughs> But uh, I guess we can come back to this when I talk about Gran Turismo 7 in my list. We might even come back to it a lot later in one of my other games. Oh. Okay, so for my list of honorable mention, uh, I only have one. Um, And it's a game I've mentioned last year. Uh, So I want to talk again about Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order because... The main reason is that when we recorded last year, I was in the middle of a playthrough uh, and more or less dropped the game. Um, And since then, uh, I... No, wait. Yes, last year I was in the middle of a playthrough, so I didn't talk too much about it. But I did mention that I started playing it and in the holiday season of 2020. Um, and more or less like felt it was pretty hard. Uh, and I kind of remember why is, uh, I started this game right after playing, uh, Marvel Spider-Man. Uh, and it's like not, uh, full hardcore hard mode, but, uh, at the pretty, not my typical difficulty level. Uh, yeah, I so think on I've... last year's episode, what I said to you, which in retrospect, I kind of regret saying that because I know it's wrong now uh, because I re-listened to the episode recently, is I told you that they were going for something a little closer to Dark Souls in design. Mm-hmm. In reality, they were actually going for something that is more like Sekiro, which had come out the year before. Uh, it, mechanically, the combat in that game is pretty much identical to Sekiro, uh, okay. which is a From Software it, so. Souls-type game. It's just not Dark Souls trademark, <laughs> literally. Right. Um but yeah, uh, it, it is trying to be reminiscent of a combat system in a very known-to-be-difficult game series. Right. So after, literally after playing Marvel Spider-Man at a not normal difficulty, just kind of one notch above, uh, I felt kind of like, oh my god, that was a good challenge for my typical skills for those games. And in that spirit, I was like, hey, you know what? Let's try it to be harder. So I realized that <laughs> when putting it to the real art mode in Star Wars, it was a bit too much. Um, so decided literally again, like those notes are a year old, uh, in like, December 2021 to more or less do a replay, uh, but lower the, uh, difficulty level. And I think I ended up being at normal, which was not enough, uh, because I felt that the game was pretty easy. But overall, even if it was too easy, like what I mean by too easy, I think I died three times mm. during my playthrough of the game, that which is, not that much. Uh, it's really interesting that you say that because, I mean, I guess since you're not a tremendously hardcore gamer, you don't get as much true. visibility into this. But every That's time true. From Software makes a video game these days, it, there is an ungodly amount of shitty discourse about if there should be difficulty settings in Souls games. Mm. And in Souls games, there are no... well. 
there generally are no difficulty settings. There's one exception. Sekiro technically has one, except it just makes the game harder. It's not <laughs> making it easier, which right. the game is harder than most Souls games already. So it's kind of mind boggling for most people why they would do that at all. Um, but there's always this discourse. And one of the things that I try to mention to people is that a lot of the times difficulty settings force you to sort of become a bit of a game designer in part where you you are the one who has to tune it for yourself. Right. And if you give somebody too many levers, they are essentially put in the shoes of a game designer where they don't want to be a game designer. They just want to play the game. And if you give them too few options, you get into a weird situation like you did where hard is too hard, but normal is too easy. And right, and that, but just to correct you here, I think there was four levels. So there was like okay, normal yeah, yeah. two. There was like introductory mode, and then there was the middle one, and I think uh, the third one. And I think that's where I should ended ended up at, uh, uh, okay. to be honest. Uh, so there was a bit more levels uh, that, but I, the way you're describing how you need to become uh, like a game level designer is kind of into there because when you change the levels it's something that just flashed in my memory is they also tell you the kind of like they, they have three parts or a couple of like uh, grades okay. and that tells you okay like for this one you need like perfect timing and then this one the mm. difficulty or the the strength of uh enemies are like way harder and then those bars changes even if you only have literally one two three four mm. uh but Again, that I don't want to go too much into details because that's where I focus um, my conversation about yeah. this game last year. But the point I wanted to make, and I think why I make it an honorable mention, is just because of how we record those episodes. I kind of feel that would have been a good game I would have enjoyed. And I did enjoy playing this game. But again, I because it falls and last year I decided I'll follow Yannick's opinion and say anything post October is out the window <laughs> um, and I kind of forgot to take notes more than just talking about the difficulty uh, in December meant that uh, for this year I couldn't like even rank it uh, more than that but it is if you've listened to our episode where we define our game video games genre like what makes us or what type of game more or less enchanted us uh this one is again a bit too on a combat side, but I was expecting that. Again, I I was playing a Marvel Spider Man just before, so I kind of knew that. But the plot in it was really good. Uh, related to that, like you kind of need to like Star Wars mm. as a franchise to kind of play it. Uh, I know uh, I don't think we'll discuss it, but a game you and I discuss. Uh, privately is the uh, marvel's guardian of galaxy uh, guardian of the galaxy game which right, right. a lot of people are saying it's a good game even if you don't like the ip like you shall play it so i think the problem with that game is specifically how it was delivered or announced to people during e3 because Everyone was tuning into the Square Enix press conference to get news about Final Fantasy shit, and they wasted the first half of the event talking about Guardian, Guardians of the Galaxy. And at that point, nobody knew that it was a good game. It just looked terrible for 30 minutes while people were tapping their watch <laughs> waiting for Final Fantasy shit. 
And I <laughs> yeah, think yeah. that colored the game up until the point where it came out. I don't think it's a game for me, but I think a lot of people have really enjoyed that game. And I think it's really just a problem with the messaging of how they rolled that game out more so than anything else. Right. But overall, the reason I bring it up again is because I really enjoyed my time. Even if I felt the game was easy when I literally lowered the the difficulty level, I really enjoyed my time with the character, with the story. It is a typical Star Wars story, FYI. Not not trying to spoil anything, but you know, there's bad people and there are good people, and guess what's happening? It's a war in space, and there are good people winning at some point, right? So. So that's that. Uh, and I'm not spoiling anything. Like, that's Star Wars. Uh, that's, that's literally that. But I really enjoy the setting. Uh, you have to visit a lot of planets. You have to also find f- for treasures. And it's funny because in those uh, RPG games that there's the main element is the plot with cutscenes and things like that. But that you have to visit different areas, and it's here. It will be. It was literally different planets. Uh, I think in this game, the kind of like trying to loot for things, or not loot for things, but trying to find uh, hidden gems or things like that, uh, was really well made in the end, and really uh, not forced me, but kind of like the way it was kind of just made in the game, kind of allowed me like, oh yeah, I want to. I don't want 100% it, but I want to have as much as I can without putting too much effort. So I really enjoyed that part. I think Try from uh, My Life in Gaming last year mentioned that in their Game of the Year video. And I think it was really funny that he said it was like a long lost like GameCube or Xbox generation Star Wars game in feel. And huh, okay. I haven't played the game at all, but I sort of get what he's talking about. It sort of has like the Metroid Prime style of exploration built into it with like modern Souls-like combat mechanics. And that sounds extremely like a delicious game to me. Other thing that sort of is probably flying over your head is that this is the same developer that does Apex Legends, which is kind of wild. I know, which is funny because a couple of moments when I was playing it, there was a lot of weird bugs. Like, oh yeah, it's... It's an EA game. I was like, wait a second. It's not an EA game. It's a... Um, it's Respawn. Yeah, it's Respawn that they developed it. The EA is just a publisher for this one. So it's like, oh, okay. But there's still weird, typical EA bugs. So, so that was funny. I think they're using... I don't think they're using their engine for this game. Ah, I didn't put that. So don't is, quote me on that. It is Frostbite engine, I'm pretty sure. Which is the EA engine. Right. So so that's that. Uh Good news, like I was just saying it in a bit. Uh, there has been a sequel announced. We got more details in the recent weeks. Uh, so it's called Star Wars Jedi Survivor, which will take place five years after the installment of this game or where the timeline left us in this game. And it's going to be released on March 17, uh, 2023. So it's wow, that's soon. Fast. Yeah, it is soon. Um but the main issue, and we'll talk about it later, is <laughs> PS4 only, or PS5 only. It's yeah. more or less current-gen console only. So, so yeah. But uh, it's a strong, honorable mention, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. I think you should play it in the next few months, just before you can grab a copy of the sequel. It's actually on my short list of games I would like to eventually play um, in the next few years. Uh Knowing you, I know you're not a big Star Wars fan, but again, I know you really enjoy Souls games. I think you might like the combat uh, mechanism, but really don't care about the story. 
So I'm eager to see what you'll think about it yeah, when you play it. You can just assume that I don't care about the story in any game I play, and therefore <laughs> I shouldn't be playing most of the games I play. <laughs> uh, the reason I say that is I know from our previous five previous episodes like this and our previous episode uh, about video games is that sometimes not, it's not only not caring about the story, but the fact that the story kind of slows you down or bothers that, you yeah, a lot. Yeah, that's that, true. That it gets in your way. Mm, uh, yeah. I think here the story is kind of light enough that, again, it's a Star Wars story, so it's light enough. Does that, it have skippable cutscenes? I don't know. I never skipped cutscenes. Terrible. <laughs> I know. I know. So you will tell me. Okay. <laughs> I, I guess so. Okay. So that's a that's a long honorable mention, but I only had one, so I think it's what was worth uh, the time, and it is worth your time too. So that concludes the honorable mention. We shall start the top four section. And <laughs> I got to start it by having a, kind of a mea culpa here. Um, this year, like 2022, has been a bit like 2021. I was looking at my notes in preparation for this episode, plus looking at my backloggery. Uh, by the way, again, I think it's my third year on backloggery or third, second year. I forgot. I think it's second. But... Again, thank you, Enik, for this recommendation. The main problem is now that I have a trace of the numbers of games I played, uh, I kind of realized I didn't play that much games, <laughs> um, which is going to be really hard for me to make a top four this year because I only have four games to mention, and I only mentioned one in the honorable mentions. Yeah, I think it's really funny because when we were discussing those privately uh, in the past few weeks, I think... I was the one who told you most of the games you played this year because I think I had a better sense of that than you did. Uh, yeah, I guess it was because I haven't looked at my backloggery uh, more recently. But if you allow this tangent before we go into top four, uh, I don't want to justify it. So if it sounds like a justification, Nick, like you can stop me and say it sounds like a justification. But I, I kind of just want to note why i guess like why did i play more games this year and in the past few years there's been a pattern where i love that yannick forces us and it's not a strong forcing but <laughs> that we do have this yearly recurrence where we talk about video games and the video games we've enjoyed the main issue of what i've more or less do these days is i do spend a lot of time playing video games in the holiday season yeah i usually am lucky that i can take seven to 14 days off uh, depending on the year and what is uh, available at work and also what i need to do for the family gatherings and things like that so it does mean that usually around christmas and new year as eve like there's a big gap in between where i'm just lazy and stuck at home and not because of a pandemic because i want to be stuck at home so that's a big portion where i would spend 50 60 hours playing video games in a, in a couple of days let's put it this way mm. um but maybe previously like 2020 2019 i realized that there was more games throughout the year that would kind of bring me back into oh yeah i need to put up the ps5 and play games or oh there's a new game on switch so i need to uh play it and i feel that for about two years they didn't have that and again Possibly uh, some of the games that I've not I'm waiting for, but I would have enjoyed either were not recommended 
or again they didn't really come out yet uh we i'm sure we'll talk about the current gen console situation in what's in the 2023 preview uh but yeah, I kind of realized that we're kind of more or less slowing down on the PS4 era of consoles and then starting on the PS5, and I'm not too much of a, a computer gamer. But this year, again, most of my time was spent on other hobbies, and I did have this pull back on video games uh, to kind of say, like, hey, what's up on my like wish list or things like that? Like, I didn't have that pull uh, to do so. So I ended up uh, playing video game because i didn't feel to unless it has been a game i've been waiting for years Mm. and this year there was only one game that could (laughs) fell into that category and it won't come as a surprise i am talking about gran turismo 7 so quickly to go back before we jump into gran turismo 7 i won't have a top four yannick will have a top four mine assume it's non-ranked i it's just three games i played this year that I think it's worth talking about. Uh, I don't think there's much more that can be said about Gran Turismo 7. We literally dedicated a whole episode about it. And it was a long-ass episode. (laughs) (laughs) It's our longest episode of this year, and it's our second longest episode of the whole podcast. And the the longest episode is two years ago, uh, Game of the Year episode. Uh, So... I don't have that much to say. The only thing I want to give you an update is if you wanted to know if I completed the main quest, let's call it the main quest, or the list of many books, I did not. Uh, on the other point I wanted to mention is one of the points I mentioned again with Gran Turismo Sport, especially when I did my uh, recap of it years later. We did the f- original review, and then I think it was a year ago at this point, just before uh Gran Turismo 7 got released. I'll put the link in the show notes. We have an episode talking about that. I did mention that in the end with Gran Turismo Sport, it was nice to see that there was constant update. Yes, they didn't fix the issues that we had with this game, but if you could pass, move past those issues, you still end up with a game with got new tracks, new cars, a couple of other new things, and it seems right now, at the time of recording, there was a bunch of update when the game got released every couple of weeks. But now, since I think April, May, that slowed down to an update per month, and yeah. that has been consistent. So May, June, July, August, September, October, November, and even this month, December, the update is just out. I think now or about to go to be released. It's out now. Uh, Oh, it's out now. Okay, perfect. Uh, I remember just you sent me the, uh, the, t- the 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 trailer for it, the video the video trailer for it. So on that front, they're not fixing the issues that Yannick and I mentioned uh, well, about they kind of are. Books. Well, okay, but not about the books, not about the books. No, the the base system of the game is essentially the same. They yes. have fixed auxiliary things like last month they added the ability to sell your cars yes that was one of the things to mention like the updates you get always the the, the typical updates you got on Gran Turismo Sport are here again more tracks more car bug fixes but they're listening to the feedback selling cars is one example uh I don't have another example but that one was a big one that I I remembered us bitching a lot about. Yes, also uh once you've completed the main menu books for the uh the main 
campaign, uh, you now have access to extra menu books, which is what the UI was for, where there was... uh, there seemed to be a selector for multiple parallel menu books, but you were never going to have that in the main campaign. Right. And now that they add semi-regularly new menu books after the fact, uh, you can use that UI to select which menu book you want to actively be working towards uh, once you're mm. done with the main campaign. Uh, so that is an improvement. Uh, I can't say I'm particularly in love with any of the extra menu books that I've played, um, but it's post-game content. It's better than nothing, I guess. <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah. So, overall, I didn't put it in my honorable dislikes or, uh, or even disappointments of this year. Um, but, again, uh, I think talking for nearly three hours about how we didn't like the game could have felt there. Um, but, yeah. Let's just say we'll have another opportunity to talk about how we didn't like Gran Turismo 7 later in the episode. Good. <laughs> so that's kind of the teaser for the two. Not That's kind of the teaser of like what are the games I played this year and also why I'm not fully ranking them. So I don't think that it will be fair to rank the games I've played because I don't feel that because... I more or less have four games to talk to, to this this year about. Uh, I don't want to create that, so I'll keep. I'll keep you. Uh, I'll tease you a bit. I'll name one game something of the year, but <laughs> uh, don't expect to have a top four like Yannick is about to have. Cool. So I go into my number four. Yes. Okay, my number four is Super Monkey Ball. It was released in 2001 as a GameCube launch title. It was developed by Amusement Vision and published by Sega. Uh, You may have heard that it was remade in 2021 as Super Monkey Ball Banana Mania for Windows, Switch, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, and Xbox Series consoles. Uh, But I would consider that to be a separate game because the physics are different enough to matter. So take that into consideration. I am talking about the original GameCube release. Uh... Somehow, despite being into the idea of Monkey Ball on paper, I had never really experienced it in depth before this year. I think I might have rented Super Monkey Ball 2 like once or twice as a kid, but I think I mostly spent my time playing the side mini games instead of the main hmm. game because I'm too bad at it. <laughs> um, but uh, at least as far as the original Super Monkey Ball is concerned, uh, the main mode of the game is a direct port of Monkey Ball, a 2001 Sega arcade game. Uh, Monkey Ball was originally designed in response to the increasing complexity of late 90s and early 2000s arcade games, and they essentially just wanted to make a fun game that was playable with simply a joystick and revolves entirely around precise inputs and not the game happening in your head trying to balance various complex game systems. Here it's just you move the thing. Uh, And in this mode, you play as one of four different monkeys inside of a hamster ball, and Uh, You need to tilt the stage to make your monkey reach the stage's goal before the time runs out. Uh, This is very similar in concept to wooden maze toys that you may have seen a long time ago or that you may have seen remade on the iPhone very early on when that was just coming out, but with more varied terrain, wackier obstacles, and other stage gimmicks. And uh, the arcade DNA can really be felt in this mode. It's super easy to jump into the game, but it's difficult to master, Uh, and that is kind of a running theme of a lot of the games that I put on my list. Uh, if you haven't heard the past lists, 
Um, if you don't lose any lives on the beginning advanced or expert difficulties, you unlock extra stages. And if somehow you get to play through all of the extra floors without any uh, using any continues, you unlock the master difficulty, which is even harder. Uh, you can also choose to play this game in competition mode, which is where you and your friends choose a number of stages that you all race through. And there's a sort of... Uh, like people get points for coming in for second, third and all of that. Um, but that's not the only aspect of the game. Uh, with the port to GameCube, they decided to add some multiplayer party games that weren't in the uh, original arcade monkey ball. Uh, so by default, you have monkey race, monkey fight, monkey target, and you can unlock monkey billiards, monkey bowling and monkey golf, which are all side games, which are, I mean, they are all technically in the same engine as, uh, as the main monkey ball mode, but they don't control the same. Uh, you're not tilting your stage at all to get to a goal. It's dedicated like racing modes, fight modes, golf modes, uh, just with the same characters. And aside from Monkey Billiards, which was limited to two players, all of these could handle up to four players. So even if you didn't dig the main gameplay of Super Monkey Ball, there was probably a mini game or two that you could enjoy playing with friends. And the really interesting thing about this is that it made Super Monkey Ball the flagship multiplayer game for the GameCube for the few months between the console's launch and the release of Super Smash Bros. Melee. <laughs> it's just kind of funny that there weren't really like i think the only other game that supported four player multiplayer at the time was wave race so you had the choice between wave race or the variety of what was offered by super monkey ball which uh was really cool and uh nagoshi who is the director of this game thought that the game would do really well in japan because of how cute it is and its aesthetic and all of that stuff but he was surprised when the bulk of the sales actually came from north america and i think this is because word really spread about this being the def the definitive multiplayer title going on uh early on in the gamecube's life and in the west we just value local multi uh, local multiplayer much more highly than in japan because we just happen to go to each other's house a lot more uh in japan it's much less common you meet each other more in uh, public areas so to me super monkey ball really embodies quality over quantity uh the worse you are at the game the smaller the game feels in overall scope so because you won't have unlocked all of the levels of the game but no matter how much of the game you actually have unlocked, everything you do have access to at any given time is remarkably well executed. And I think it's really interesting that this is probably, like, aside from Super Smash Bros. Melee, this is probably one of the games with the most that benefit the most from the precise inputs that you can get from the GameCube's controller. Uh, this is something John Syracuse has talked about previously in the past, where there have been versions of Super Monkey Ball on other consoles that are significantly worse to play because the GameCube controller is just the perfect controller for this game, uh, which is really wild. Uh, in a 2001 review for Insider, Mark Medina said, the greatest thing about this game is that it's so unassuming that you are genuinely very surprised that it's extremely high quality. And I fully agree with that. Uh, I think like if you, if you think about it in the grander scheme of things, like everyone knows super monkey ball two has more stuff. Uh, there's just a lot more levels and a lot more uh, side games. And a lot of them are better executed. Uh, 
Uh, but I think there's much more variability in that game where there are some really crappy levels and there are some really good levels. I think Super Monkey Ball, like everything you have is excellent and it just, it never stops being excellent. And that's what's great about the game. So if you haven't played Super Monkey Ball, uh, I her- highly recommend going to go check it out. And now this finally completes that I have had Sony monkeys and Sega monkeys in my game of the <laughs> game of the year lists. <laughs> Yeah, I remember the year was confused about Super yeah. Monkey Ball, and it was not Super Monkey Ball. I forgot, even now, I even forgot the name of the other game I was confused about. Ape Escape. Oh, yes, yes. The other thing I want to say is that I ordered a copy of this off of eBay, and the person huh. who sold me this game put a little postcard on the box uh, with it that was just like an explanation of how important this game was in uh, gaming history and how much they personally huh. like it. And it was just like really cool to get one of those little notes yeah. from someone else who's really passionate about games. Uh, so I hope to buy more from that seller in the future. Uh, but yeah, also yeah. Uh, it, it just it just made me smile when I opened that game. It, it was just like the cherry on top to an excellent game. It's I was about to say one of those rare sellers, but it's one of those rare sellers i'll say this way on ebay that reminds you how nice ebay is until you encounter all the thousands and thousands of other she sellers but then those sellers come in and you're like oh that's why i like ebay i have remarkable luck with uh ebay sellers because i've had maybe one negative experience over tens of years Right, I don't buy too much on eBay, so my track record is also good. But again, uh, you hear about a lot of horror story. Mm. But still. So, no, uh, uh, I guess next time I want to buy used games, uh, I'll ask you for this seller. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to get into your next game? Uh, No, you can go to your top three and then we can do a round robin. All right. Uh, Number three is Rivals of Ether. This is a game that was released in 2017 on PC, Xbox One, and later Nintendo Switch. It was developed and self-published by Dan Fornace. And it is a 2D pixel art platform fighter, which is a subgenre of fighting games featuring gameplay similar to Super Smash Brothers. So mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with the Smash mechanics, uh, instead of have, of being a traditional fighting game with a life bar, uh, the win condition in platform fighters is to get the opponent out of bounds or into the blast zones, as they say. Uh, and the more you hit your opponent with attacks, the further they will be knocked back. Uh, so the way this is represented is at the bottom of the screen, uh, Every player has a percentage, and as their percentage increases, uh, that is a multiplier for knockback with every attack. Uh, For years, I thought that I didn't really like competitive platform fighters, uh, but last year, uh, Nickelodeon All-Star Brawl came out, and I got that on PS Plus this year. And then Multiversus, which is kind of the uh, Warner Brothers equivalent to Nickelodeon All-Star Brawl, came out in the middle of the year. And playing both of those made me realize that actually maybe I do like platform fighters. Maybe I just don't like Super Smash Brothers Melee competitively. <laughs> um, because for so long, that was the only game you really saw being played competitively. And I think I just don't like competitive Melee. But uh, platform fighters are actually really cool. And Rivals definitely helped reignite my enjoyment of platform fighters. Uh, it's aesthetically the one I'm most uh, I'm most aligned with. And it made me curious about Smash Ultimate to actually finally buy a Switch. So indirectly, Rivals is kind of responsible for me getting a Switch. Um, 
I love the pixel art style of this game so much. Uh, part of that is because it's low hardware requirements because it's all 2D, uh, but it's also easier to parse during hectic gameplay be- than a more graphically rich game. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Smash Ultimate recently, and I can tell you that sometimes when the game is busy, it is incredibly hard to tell what is going on versus when you're uh, playing Rivals of Ether, where uh Everything is so low res that it's very easy to uh, parts quickly uh, in the heat of the battle. And uh, there's a more or less fixed camera, which is also much less exhausting for me than trying to keep up with a dynamic camera that's always panning and zooming like in Smash Ultimate. Uh, in Smash Ultimate, sometimes I just like I don't want to move just because I know that if I move closer to the opponent, the camera will zoom in and it'll mess me up. Uh, so that's a whole thing. Uh, one of the things Rivals of Ether is uh, most known for is Steam Workshop support on PC. Uh, so this means uh, custom stages, custom characters, custom game modes, and training tools that are possible through developer-encouraged user modding. Uh, there's an entire chunk of the Rivals community that only plays Rivals for workshop stuff. Uh, most big Rivals tournaments will hold a workshop event that uh, that names ahead of time a legal character roster from which players can choose to compete with. And there are even several sub-communities that try to create curated collections of themed content. Uh, so there's Dream Collection, which is a collection of Kirby-themed custom characters and stages. There's Super Small Lads, which is kind of a project to create a Smash game in the Rivals engine with... The- uh, the constraints that the original Game Boy would demand of a game developer. So they make their characters so that they only have two attack buttons and a D-pad. They use four shades of monochrome uh, color palettes, and they use big chunky pixels to make their characters. And they've made an entire sort of meta game within Rivals of Ether, which is just these s- characters developed with those constraints. Um, so it's really interesting to see people's creativity. Uh, there's a really good, uh, YouTuber in the space called Zeta who has, uh, a monthly highlight reel of all of the stuff that has come out in the workshop community. And like often they're 10 to 15 minutes long of just like clips of people playing with all of these different custom characters. There is a ton of stuff coming out every month that is kind of hard to keep up with at times. Uh, but it's really neat to see all the creativity. Um, Making characters and stages for Workshop definitely seems like a lot of work, but it just, at least to me, it seems like a lot of work, but it doesn't look that difficult. Um, maybe I will regret this, uh, but I'm definitely curious about it, and I might dip my toe into trying to make things for Workshop uh, at some point, uh, because I'm very curious about it. The other thing uh, that's big about Rivals of Ether is that it got rollback netcode for one versus one matches launched last year. Uh, so as we discussed in our netcode episode, rollback is a type of netcode that lets you make gameplay feel responsive and consistent at the expense of very rare visual glitching when connection dips are encountered. And it has... The no, no, en- uh, I have a correction for you. Sorry for the interruption. That's that the, the joke? <laughs> no, but I was about to say that's the netcode style that Japanese developers don't like. Oh, yeah, this is true. Although um, (laughs) this year we have made a lot of progress in that space, which is good. Um, But yeah. Uh, And yes, in theory, if you were to use rollback, uh, it has the end result of making online feel like offline, making it much better practice for competitive players that compete in both environments. Uh, 
It's also far less frustrating to play than in an environment where the game has variable input delay over the course of a match or it lags due to network fluctuations. Uh, Nothing makes me happier than when a fighting game I already love on paper is actually playable online with good netcode. And part of uh, enjoying that netcode is participating in tournaments. And one of the reasons that Rivals is so high on my list this year is that playing in Rivals tournaments during the month of August really helped my mental health. And specifically one tournament, uh, which is the Roundabouts series. So Roundabouts is held by Zeta, which is the YouTuber I mentioned earlier, uh, who does workshop stuff. And Roundabouts was a Swiss-style tournament held every Monday for Rivals Workshop characters. And what's really cool about the Swiss format is that it's a tournament format where each round, players face opponents with the same win-loss record as they do. So if I win, uh, if I lose three of my matches, on my fourth match, I am going to play someone else who lost three of their matches. And that means that over the course of the night, you are more likely to be playing people at around your skill level than in a traditional double elimination bracket where you lose twice, you're just not playing anymore. Uh, so it's really interesting to get more games in and you get to meet people around your level. And it's a really nice uh, social way of having a tournament on a regular basis. And what I really liked about Roundabout specifically is that it was scheduled on Monday night and that it completely changed my outlook about Mondays from negative because I don't want to work on a Monday to positive because I can't wait to play in the tournament on Monday. And it's just a stupid life hack to improve your mental health is just like put something you like on Monday nights and suddenly Mondays stop sucking as much. Um, I mean, this could be literally applied to any hobby, but I just figured it out by signing up for a Monday Rivals tournament, right? Um, Unfortunately, the tournament organizers stopped holding uh, roundabouts on Mondays because it's a lot of work to be a TO. Uh, I know a lot of TOs. uh, I can vouch for that. Uh, And I haven't really found a good replacement tournament uh, to put in the Monday slot. But I think uh, if you have a hard time getting motivated to get up on Mondays, it might be a very valuable ritual to integrate into your work week if possible uh, to just... Put some, put a hobby you like on Monday nights and uh, see if it improves your mental health. So that's it for my number three. Good. Let's go to my third game I want to talk about this week. Yes. Yeah, I'm just trying to... Okay. Um, so this game is kind of a surprise to me that I played it. Oh. And I think you're curious to know what I thought of it. And here I'm talking about Pokemon Legends Arceus on Nintendo Switch. So some of you might remember that I live with a huge Pokemon fan. <laughs> um, and as with any new Pokemon games, uh, Tony bought Arceus that they got released. The funny thing that happened, literally I think 10 days after, is that he won a physical copy of the game in a contest. So we wow. more or less end up with two copies of the game. Uh, one, I think the first one we bought, yeah, the first one we bought digitally, uh, and then the other one uh, was a physical copy. So... That was kind of uh, an excuse for me to just start playing this game at the same time as him around the launch window. Uh, But the reason I mentioned this is a surprise that I played this game is I think it goes to my background with uh, Pokemon itself. Because I've not really played that much Pokemon game unless we're talking about Pokemon Blue because... When I was young, <laughs> when I got a Game Boy Color, 
that's the game I got. You're uh, a Gen One boomer. I, I guess that's the the good way of saying it. Isn't it <laughs> I, I know Tunia is another expression to talk about people that just care about Gen One uh, Pokemon, like me. Uh, funnily enough, though, I did have a bit of experience with Pokemon Gold because my brother had uh, Pokemon Gold uh, on his Game Boy Color. So after playing this game, uh, never really kept up with the new releases i think i've after that i didn't play any i didn't i didn't play any one on the game boy events because i never had game boy events i didn't play that much nope i didn't play any one on the ds um and i think the maybe the first one i've played again was pokemon let's go and plays literally like <laughs> in scare quotes because uh, when Tony got them I just I kind of like watch him play and maybe try it a little bit just so that we can try the uh, the Pokeball the Pokeball throwing that because we had the the Pokeball controller but even that that wasn't too much so I'm not even able to say like why I decided to pick it up I just like we had an extra copy Tony was playing so I was like hey, you know what it's been a while since I played Pokemon so let's try it and Legends Arceus was kind of a big departure to the typical uh, Pokemon game because this is the first quote-unquote game. Uh, no, that was the one before too, but it was one of them. Uh, it was a, one of the first one that had more open world type game um, where here you in Legion Arceus, you more or less end up with multiple area that you can freely, freely explore on your own. Yeah, there's not a kind of a, a path to go through them, um, but uh, you more or less end up in the Isui region, which, for my research, it is the same one as Diamond and Pearl, but in a Not literally different... quite. Yeah, okay, you were getting there. <laughs> yeah, it is the same region, but not at the same time. Uh, yes, I was getting there if you want to talk about the time itself. But uh, just back on the region itself, you more or less end up where where you stay in that village is one region. Uh, and traveling from region to region requires a loading screen. So that's why it's kind of partially open world. You can just... There's no smooth transition between those regions. But once you move to... Uh, a sub-region of where you're located. For a long while, you can stay in that region uh, without having to load another environment. Again, um, from my understanding of watching Tony playing all the Pokemon games, uh, and my limited understanding is there was also this new mechanism of bringing the Pokemon Go style of catching Pokemon to this, where you can just walk around a Pokemon, throw a Pokeball, and then hopefully... You catch it, um, and I think it goes end in end with this uh, open world style game because again, uh, Pokemon don't jump at you or attack you like they're just like animals around. Uh, which I I think it's kind of the end game for Pokemon, right? Like like the way and we're watching um, for the past few years we've been watching the anime, so like it's fun to see that more recently in the anime they're just like animals around which the games i always felt that never were able to kind of recreate the atmosphere where in the pokemon universe there's no animals there's pokemon and that's it so uh that style that mechanism of how you catch pokemon yes you can still combat them some of them when you throw a pokeball they get pissed so now you have to either run away or literally um 
start a battle with them to try to catch them. Uh, I don't want to say it's refreshing because, again, I haven't played the other games. Uh, but it was interesting. Uh, also, regarding that, there's this notion of you can sneak up to them to uh, to try to get higher chances of just uh, catching a Pokemon by just throwing a Pokeball and not attacking them. Because, again, if you sneak up and they see you, they, again, might be scared or they can start attacking you. So to kind of come back about a bit the story behind this game, I mentioned it is in the Isui region, which is quote-unquote the same as Diamond and Pearl. The big difference is you're thrown back in the past uh, by Arceus itself. I don't want to say too much about that, but assume like Pokemon God, kind of. Uh, but you'll, you'll figure out... If you've played Diamond and Pearl, that's not news. <laughs> okay, I guess. Uh, but the idea is you're from current time Pokemon universe and you've been thrown in the past. You don't really know why you've been chosen. Uh, I didn't complete the game. And Tony told me like, yeah, you still don't know why you've got chosen uh, th- to do that. But your main goal is to encounter all the Pokemon, the Pokemon in that region. So that's your main quest is you've got to not catch them all. You just got to encounter them all so that you more or less what you discover is you need to build one of the first uh, Pokedex in that region. Because compared to all the previous game or all the previous Pokemon stuff I've encountered, like the Pokemon universe feels it's really a technologically advanced society. But because you're... And my understanding from what I've found is it's back into the Japan colonization time. So it's mm-hmm. like really far back. Uh, like the Pokeballs are not like a tech gadget. They're literally like made of wood. Uh, so the, there was another thing that was important in this game is there's crafting now, but it makes sense because you're like back in the past. Like you, you need to build everything and you need to build a society so that's why there's people there that they're like settlers literally one of the groups of people you more or less cross path with quickly are not native from this region they're settlers and they gotta build the shit to do to make it happen so i I feel that the way they've incorporated a typical like crafting mechanism in this game was pretty pretty brilliant because it fits with the narrative of the game this is where I push up my glasses and do the nerdy voice and tell you that actually the the wood Pokeball stuff was all in Pokemon Gold as well. <laughs> but... You know what? You can do that. And I'm sure if Tony were to open the door and listen to that section of the episode, he would freak out. But again, uh, I wrote my notes myself, didn't consult him too much. For it's all good. Part. I think most people forget about that mechanic because the balls you can make in that game are fucking useless most of the time. Oh, really? Ah, okay. But yeah, so that part was uh, was fun to me, uh, and overall, I, I I think the the part of the story I played was pretty light and fun. It was just like you wander around, you do a couple of things, you start to do your main quest again. Don't forget that I was playing this game at the same time that somebody was literally spending days and days playing this game. So. I don't want to say that it had an impact on my own <laughs> playthrough, but again, I am a story person for video games. So knowing what happens next kind of downplays yeah. a bit my own experience. Um, but then that's why I realized I was looking at that as 
I played the game for maybe two, three weeks, which I enjoyed, but I started to feel that because you need to uh, fill in your uh, Pokedex and there's also certain challenges. Uh, so like you need to catch a couple of these Pokemons or you need to see this Pokemon do this attack. Gives you different research point because you're quote-unquote a researcher. Uh, I felt that that mechanic were starting to get a bit repetitive. I guess it could be ignored because in the end, my understanding is to finish the main quest. You don't need really need to have your, uh, your, your Pokedex fully completed. You just have certain part of it or certain important part of it to be completed. Uh, but in preparation for this episode, I kind of like, I, I wanted to refresh my mind about this game. And, you know, I was like, huh, maybe I should pick it, pick it back up. Like I, I was just like wandering around, trying to f- just remember where I was, and then Tony showed me, "Oh yeah, you're just there." Like literally, I think I, I did one, like one quest, not the main quest, but like the first part. Mm. I think out of six of the main quests, uh, so you're like, "Yeah, you're not that far." Which okay, that's fine. But uh, picking it back up reminded me that it was a fun game that you could. Spend 30, 40 minutes here and there, progress, go in a different world that is really light, explore, uh, maybe do that for an hour, and then the next hour is like you progress the main quest, put the switch down, come back a couple of days, continue doing that, and then after a couple of weeks, a month or two, you would just end up completing this game and have just fun. Like, there's no stress about it, no urgency, no... No, also like feelings or sense, unless you're a big Pokemon nerd, no feelings <laughs> or sense where you want to more or less rush through the game because you want to finish it and like go through it quickly. Um, I feel that the pace of the game makes it for it to be enjoyed. Uh, and I'm kind of considering maybe picking it back up again at the end of 2022. It's a bit hard to say because there are new Pokemon games that are hard, uh, that are out, excuse me. And yet again, I could play both of them if I wanted because we have uh, them at home. Uh, and I know that, for example, like Tony has completed his main quest in Scarlet. So in theory, yeah, in Scarlet. So in theory, I could play this one while it plays Violet and things like it had. But overall, this game was a fun surprise and kind of reminded me that Pokemon existed, even if I were to <laughs> spend like 24 hours a day with some living with, some, with a big Pokemon nerd. Uh, but existed as a game that I could enjoy playing, not as something I used to enjoy as a kid. And not saying that it's a kid's game, that there's no uh, negative connotation to, to that on that front for that part. It's just that it is a game that I used to enjoy when I was a kid. I know I could still enjoy it, but I forgot that I could still enjoy this game. I mean, which it, was... it's also literally a kid's game. Like, it's not a derogatory statement to say that it is a kid's game. It is no. literally a kid's game. No, but sometimes it comes, like, for certain people, it comes with uh, it's not complex or it's not uh, not entertaining, but, like, it could be, get poured quickly or, yeah. like, you know, that fun for that. So, so, yeah. And again, like, because of my nephew, we're watching not now, uh, but like because uh, he was spending time with us, like we, I personally discovered the uh, recent anime about uh, Pokemon Masters. So like there are things to enjoy there, and that's why I don't want to say uh, there was a negative connotation to that statement. But yeah, so yeah, Nick, where are you? Like, were you expecting me to talk about a Pokemon game in 2022? Is more or less what I'm trying to say here. 
I, I'm not entirely surprised uh, that uh, huh. you, you talked about it. Uh, I mean, obviously, I didn't know you were going to win a, a Pokemon, a copy of PLA uh, mm. out of nowhere. Uh, so no, no, that, no, but... that definitely helps, right? Um, I think what's really interesting to me about this game is early on in the year, we were talking about it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think you said something like, uh, Tony was in the background or something and said, oh, how does he know he doesn't like it? He didn't even play the game. <laughs> uh, and I think that's that's really funny because I think I have a certain level of game literacy where I can just look at a game for like, give me 10 minutes of gameplay footage and like a description of the game systems. And I will tell you with fairly good accuracy if it's a game that I would enjoy playing or not. And PLA for some reason, like it, it appeals to me on an aesthetic level and on a, a, a lore curiosity level because I spent 450 hours in Diamond and Pearl because I was playing competitively <laughs> online. Uh, so I know that setting very well. And I'm like, when you spend 450 hours in something, you do have a certain personal attachment to like the environments and the setting and the history of that world, even if you're not actively seeking like all of the wiki pages for all of the lore and stuff. Right. right. Uh, so I have personal curiosity about like the, the PLA story, which is really strange for me to be saying when I'm uh-huh. clearly not the story guy, but from wow. a mechanical level, this game does absolutely nothing for me. And I, I think I realized this year that like, Open world games are a gigantic turnoff for me. I, I realized this when I played like three hours playing Elden Ring and I was just bored at the end of it. And everyone else on my uh, PS5, like the, you can go see your year in review stuff on PS5 and people are posting them on the like button and everyone is like 250 hours in Elden Ring. And I'm like, I put the game in for three hours and I was bored and I turned it off and I played something more fun. Um, so I think there, I'm just really not aligned with the whole open world philosophy stuff. I think it, it is for a completely different kind of player than myself mm-hmm. and that I'm just going to go look at the wiki pages about PLA instead of playing it and I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, uh, just a, at a larger, like bird's eye view of the whole Pokemon franchise as a whole, I signed out of Pokemon after Sun and Moon and Every game that comes out, I do not see signs that they are heading back in the direction of the mechanical identity of Pokemon that I enjoyed previously. They are deviating if deviating from it too much that I don't think it feels like Pokemon anymore. Right. Like, this is the Nintendo thing. It's like Super Mario 64 or whatever. It's a thing they do. Sometimes <laughs> they just decide to reinvent a franchise and you're stuck to live with it. And instead of complaining on Twitter every fucking day, like a lot of Pokemon fans are... Uh, I have just decided that, okay, I don't have to pay attention to Pokemon games anymore. I'm just going to go play something else, and I'm cool with it. And that's kind of how I'm rolling. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the complaining on Twitter. I think one of the funniest uh, TikTok I've seen from Tony about uh, the recent Pokemon game is, again, if you're not aware, the recent games are a buggy mess. Yeah, and people are bitching about that, and I think the TikTok, I don't re- I don't recall the exact quote from the TikTok, but the TikTok was like, "This game is a buggy mess. Here's why I spent a hundred hours on yeah. it." <laughs> yeah, yeah, <That> <laughs> and it's a like lot. like a yeah, Pokemon nerding in a in a nutshell. Sometimes there's a certain endearing quality to janky games that people really fall in love with. Mm-hmm. I think for Pokemon, it's just really sad because you're thinking about like this franchise that is one of the 
most lucrative franchises in the world and Mm -hmm. game freak has never had to make a 3d game until the 3ds and when they were making 3ds pokemon games they were playing at like 15 frames per second because they didn't (laughs) know how to make a 3d game and now they have to make a console game which is much more demanding and they are shitting their bed (laughs) full throttle and it's like it's incredibly depressing that at a technical level pokemon is suffering this much like i i i I understand where the bugs come from for Pokemon because of I know where they've been coming from. Like they literally made one other game I think for, that was non-Pokemon in that time, and it was a Unity game for PS4. It's like what the fuck? It was called <laughs> Tembo the Badass Elephant, and that's not a joke. That's an actual Game Freak game wow. that came out on PS4 in like 2014. Um, so they have like zero 3D experience. So I don't know how they expect to get out of this. And they've been contracting Monolith Soft, which does uh, Xenoblade, which Xenoblade games, if you put aside the fact that they run at like 320p in handheld mode, (laughs) they are remarkable open world games that should not be running on the Switch that are. So they they know what they're doing. And they help a lot with Pokemon, but there's only so much they can do when Game Freak is ultimately the game developer. And you know what? That's, I think... What is slowly trying, slowly but surely, possibly coming, uh, bringing me back into this game is, again, most of my experience with Pokemon is from literally twenty five years ago. Yeah, from a top down game. That, correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection was pretty linear. Right, you need to go to do that, and then you do Pokemon the next has gen. always been extremely linear. Yeah, right, and. It, it feels to me, though, for that universe, having an open world game where you see the Pokemon, you can literally walk and bump into them and possibly decide wherever you go want to go first because you don't have to do gym battles. To me, feels more Pokemon than what we used to have. And maybe it's because I... It's just chill because I want to live in a place where there's Pokemon and just uh, hang out and things like that. But I feel that ignoring the technical aspects of why 3D games from Game Freak sucks, I feel that it makes sense they're going there because you want to be a character that walks around Pokemon. So, you know what? Maybe I'll play the new ones because that's also that too, and it seems to be less linear-ish because you can decide where what you want to do first and things like that, and we shall see. But uh, my time spent in uh, Legion Arcade was about maybe 20, 30 hours overall. Wow. I didn't look at the Switch, but a lot uh, to put it. This way, maybe, maybe 15, 20. I, I, again, I'm ballparking something I did in February, let's put it this way. Um but I remember thinking not two hours in it. Um, so more than not two hours. So so yeah, so it is a good game. Uh, again, um, I'm not sure if you should play it. Compared to Star Wars Jedi, like I'm not sure I have a, I have a strong recommendation for it, but uh, it is a memorable moment of 2022 in my uh, video games my small video games time uh, because I think it was out of the ordinary for me to play a Pokemon game and my enjoy my time. So that's why it's in this part of the episode. Yeah. Do you like hanging out with Pokemon? Yes, you should probably check it. Do you like not hanging out with Pokemon and more <laughs> battle stuff? Probably don't check it out. 
you know what? I know you're after all, but that's kind of a good summary. I was actually just being genuine, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you had your trolling voice, so that's why I was unsure. Sure. Are you ready to talk about Cars? Yes. Released in 2005 on the PlayStation 2 is another Ooh. racing game that is not Gran Turismo 4. It's Ooh. Enthusia Professional Racing. It was developed and published by Konami, and it is definitely a career mode focused simulation racer in the vein of Gran Turismo. We did talk about this a tiny bit at the end of the Gran Turismo 7 episode, but I want to flesh it out a little bit more on this episode. Contrary to popular belief, I did not add this game to my list in protest of Gran Turismo 7. <laughs> at the moment the Gran Turismo 7 came out, it was in the in my ranking at the number one spot, which means something Ooh. bumped it down. Uh, so yeah, it w it was already on my list. Uh, I got enthusiasm in late 2021, and I had a very good time with it leading up to Gran Turismo 7, which definitely did not help Gran Turismo 7's case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I recall because we talked a lot privately about this game, uh, even when we saw each other at the beginning of the year. It was like you kind of were telling me like you gotta play this game at some point in your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I told you I'm pretty sure you're going to have to spend twenty dollars before the end of this episode. Uh oh. Yeah. So the main crux of Enthusia is its Enthusia Life career mode. And your goal in this mode is to become the number one driver ranked by points by the end of the game. And your, cur your current points value is equal to the sum of the nine highest point awarding weeks of the last 12 weeks of the calendar. This is incredibly hard to convey in words. I had to rewrite that sentence like 17 times because it was too complicated. Um, but that is as concise a way as I could find. Uh, notably, because your uh, point value in the rankings is always based on the last 12 weeks, there is a pressure to perform consistently throughout the game. And if you don't perform consistently, things will get locked again if you slump, and it will Ooh. stall your process, your progress throughout the game if you don't. Um, so it is not kidding around. Uh, as you cross various point thresholds, you unlock higher event divisions, which award you with a higher baseline of points per event completed. Although that is not going to be enough to let you climb the ladder by itself. So before we talk about Enthusia's solution to this problem, I want to explain another system from the Gran Turismo series that has been completely underused, and that is A-Spec points. Mm, those beloved points. <laughs> a spec points is a numerical representation of how your car compares to your opponent's cars in a given race so if you're massively overpowered for a race a race might award zero a spec points if you win if you're massively underpowered for a race a race might award 100 or 300 a spec points if you win i don't remember what the actual scale is um but the idea is you get more points if you're underpowered and you get zero points if you're very overpowered uh, Gran Turismo 4 tracks a spec points on a per event basis, but it never really does anything with it at all. Uh, if you go to your profile page in the game, you can see the total of your highest a spec points per event. Uh, and this is primarily tracked for a player's personal curiosity and self-improvement. There's no mechanical purpose in the game otherwise. Like, me and Nicolivier can play Gran Turismo 4, share our A spec points with each other, and if we've played exactly the same events, which is unlikely, uh, 
we will be able to compare with our ASPEC points how much difficulty we had getting through those races on paper anyway. Enthusiast career mode entirely revolves around its equivalent to the ASPEC point system, which is called odds. Odds are a numerical representation of how likely the game thinks you are to finish in first place given the car you are driving. The higher the number, the less likely you are to finish in first place. And crucially, odds are a multiplier that is applied to the points that are given to you by an event. And that shakes up the game a lot. Mm. By doing this, Enthusia incentivizes you to use the weakest car you can manage in order to maximize how many points you can get. Uh, When you select an event in the menu, you see the entire lineup of cars that you're going up against ahead of time, as well as both your odds and their odds, so you can plan accordingly. But it's not just about managing ranking points, it's also about managing time. If you choose to switch your car, switching your car takes one in-game week, so you don't want to switch your car every race or you will be losing out on weeks that you can spend getting more points into your total for the last 12 weeks. Um, in a race, there is a penalty system, which is called Enthu points, which is really hard to say. And it's visualized as a life bar in the bottom left corner of the screen. Every time you bump a wall, an opponent, or go off course, you lose points. And you regain a few Enthu points at each race as long as you finish with a non-zero amount. You can also completely refill your points by taking a week off and resting. When your Enthu points hit zero, you are forced to take to take a week off to refill them. So there's a lot less leeway in the game to cheesing your wins than there is in Gran Turismo, where penalties basically aren't enforced 95% of the time in the (laughs) offline campaign. If you're talking Gran Turismo 4, it's literally zero uh, for the main campaign. Uh, so that means like the Fuji Speedway thing where you can just drive straight through the curve. Like, no, that shit doesn't <laughs> work in Thusia. Um, unfortunate. Um, yeah, fuck the chicanes. That's what, more or less what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, Enthusia has 211 cars, but due to how it's structured, you will only get to experience a small slice of them per playthrough. Uh, there is no currency in Enthusia to spend on cars or upgrades. Now, you might think that sucks. And kind of, but not really. Um, When you beat a race, your opponent's cars are put into a roulette, and you can win one of the cars that you don't already own. Unfortunately, you can also win nothing, which happens a lot, and it sucks. And everyone who loves Enthusia, this is their number one complaint about the game, because when you do four races in a row and you don't win a fucking car, it sucks. Ooh. Yeah. I can imagine. The more you use a car, you gain experience points specific to that car that will upgrade it over time. So this to me is like, we took initial D and we put it in our career mode because that's literally how initial D works. Um, unfortunately, the roulette is rigged, uh, meaning that the result is determined before you press the button. So your timing doesn't mean shit, uh, which means the cards you are going to get over a playthrough are completely random and you have no way of influencing it, uh, which kind of sucks. Um but that just adds to the variability of each playthrough. Because the game incentivizes you to limit your car changes and to specialize in specific cars, you can have wildly different experiences from one playthrough to another due to the random car pool you're going to be uh, ending up with. 
even as a Konami fan, I came out of playing Enthusia Professional Racing absolutely stunned at how good a job they did. Uh, if you put yourself back in 2005, Konami didn't exactly have the best track record for games outside of Kojima games, Silent Hill, and music <laughs> games. Uh, they absolutely knocked it out of the park with this one. Uh, it was a commercial flop, and I think the game would have done much better if they hadn't timed its release three months after Gran Turismo 4 was released in North America. Ouch. Yes. Um, uh, one thing I should mention is that the original racetracks, uh, the courses, I mean, and the music in this game are absolutely amazing. A uh, special shout out to Awakening Nürburgring Suite, which is a 10-minute song composed exclusively for the Nürburgring track. Nice. Uh, it is so good. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes so you can go listen to it. And I think above all else, I think they've done a remarkable job of carving out their own path for a sim racer campaign. I think it still feels like it has a lot of fresh, unexplored ideas 17 years after it came out. Uh, so if you have $20, a PS2, and you like sim racers like Gran Turismo, you can't really go wrong with Enthusia Professional Racing. And uh, this is where you open your wallet and go to eBay and yeah. buy a copy before the price goes up. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I kindly borrow yours. That is also an option, yeah. That's, but getting aside on uh, on borrowing yours, though, um, I kind of agree with you that it seems to be a game like a sim game I need to play. It's wow. You should have said that maybe uh, eight months ago when you play, were playing it and said it was so good. You you didn't fully flesh out your your thoughts. Well, I I try to save surprises for the episode, which is unfortunate because sometimes. There are things I want you to play, and I need to wait quite a while to sell it to you. <laughs> yeah, maybe a moral of this year's episode is you don't need to wait so I can have more content. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm very excited for your next game, because I've been waiting for this all year. Speaking of things I've been waiting for all year. True. <laughs> so the next game in my pool of, I guess, it's my last game. And I, yeah. I, I, I don't know how to count tonight, it seems, but I'm going to talk about Farming Simulator 2022, or 22. <laughs> Before I do, I would like you to remind yourself of what I said about an hour ago when I said I didn't play too much game. Yeah, Nick, you have to guess how many hours I sanked. Oh, dear God. Game. Oh. In this game. 200 hours? you're on the spot oh my god i sank 207 hours according to steam on okay, this game okay, this okay, year okay. Wait, wait, wait wait i haven't played anything for 200 hours this year <laughs> so yes i did say i didn't play too much video games i did play one and one <laughs> extensively <laughs> so i want to explain how it came to be because that's quite the journey so the story goes, uh, last fall, uh, my brother got introduced to Farming Simulator via a friend, uh, more or less around the launch of Farming Simulator 22 in November 2021. Uh, so after this introduction, uh, I don't know, still don't really understand why. Uh, I guess because it's full of trucks and things like that. I don't, still, I don't know. <laughs> but my brother got hooked, like hooked hard. Uh, and I recall uh, playing to Farming Simulator 9, 20, I think it's called 19, but for 
the version 2019, I, which I think I have to look again. I think I got it for free, part of uh, PSN Plus, more or less. Uh, but he showed me this game uh, via the PS4 SharePlay feature. Um, and I started to play this one and then I decided to more or less uh, buy it. While Farming is, farming Simulator is a franchise and other simulator games like these are... They're a known commodity to me. I never played any of those. And even some of the popular ones like the Goat Simulator and things like that. <laughs> so at this point, what happened is I bought it on Steam. And we'll come back to this later. And it was when my brother and a couple of his friends ended up renting a server and we were building our own farm. And more or less, that's when I personally got Hook. While the gameplay itself is quite different, uh, I think Farming Simulator kind of reminds me of why I spent a lot of time playing Animal Crossing in 2020. You more or less end up building your own virtual world the way you want it to do. After a couple of weeks, uh, and that's... quite typical for my brother's friend, he more or less got lost interest into this game and decided to move to something else, but he was the one spending money on the server, so more or less my brother and I was like, yeah, you know what, we're still wanting to spend more time on this game, so he decided to more or less just, when we play together, he will uh, more or less serve his own save game locally, or his own own farm uh, to me. So he would more or less become the server and i would just connect to his game and playing together we did as you can imagine remembering that i spent 207 hours <laughs> on this game uh we spent nights and nights uh, last winter a lot uh but even this summer like it, it, like that happened throughout the last year uh and playing a lot uh in the late hours and that to me the one last thing i want to end on this tangent is to, to me this is not something typical. Like, in 2019, when I played a lot of Battle Royale games, I did end up playing a lot of Call of Duty Black Ops 4 with my brother. Mm -hmm. Because my brother is typically a FPS player, and when I say FPS, I mainly mainly mean Call of Duty. I remember when we were living together at my parents' place, and we got a PS2, and they bought Call of Duty. You know, the first one about the second World War. Yeah. uh, Like, he would lose his mind. Like he would spend so much time playing this. And even when we got a PS3, now starting to play online. And like that, like FPS or Call of Duty as FPS has been a, a staple in my brother's lineup of video games. But that's not my style. That's not my jam. So we never ended up playing video games together past growing up, like past being kids because he would end up just wanting to either play COD or playing like sports video games like football <laughs> or hockey and I'm like I don't care about that we would play together or somewhat play together uh, Gran Turismo because we are a big fan of cars uh, but except that we didn't have uh, something that uh, we would do that together and as you can imagine farming simulator, farming simulator changed that in a big way uh, last note on that tangent, it's kind of funny because my brother was hosting the game on his space PS4 and I was playing on <laughs> the iMac. So after I go through uh, Farming Simulator, I kind of want to go back quickly and just uh, remind me if I forget that I did a bit of Mac gaming this year or mm. a bit, a lot of Mac gaming this year. 
the gist of farming simulator is you build up your own farm and as a simulator game you more or less decide what it means so are you a milk farmer or are you a more like agro agricultural farmer so are you growing crops and things like that or are you like somebody that's like to just uh spend time in the forest and cut wood and things like that uh this game allows you this flexibility of defining what your farm is and what it means to you for sure you do end up uh, buying a lot of more or less farming equipment which is part of the fun process of this game but you also end up spending hours like growing crops or like like uh, cultivating crops or just being with uh farming equipment in the middle of a big field and just being like oh my god i i'm driving like six kilometers per hour just <laughs> uh spreading uh spreading anything on my field so the weird part is that it's real time if you want or you can fast forward but uh that also seasons one of the big changes for farming simulator 22 is they have introduced seasons or times when you need to cultivate and time when you need to harvest certain crops that's a big change from what it used to be before which i think was more like okay this let's say um let's say you need to wait for three months for this to be harvested and this other crop needs is five months so it, it was not at certain moment of the year for sure it's a feature you can enable or disable but that's one of the big thing uh also i think they even introduce a lot more crops in farming simulator 22 uh a lot big more equipment um or a lot more brands of equipment uh, for that. And my brother is a big John Deere fan, so <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all John. licensed stuff, right? It is all lens licensed oh brand, <laughs> so you can end up with a farm full of John Deere equipment like we have, <laughs> and that's not because I am responsible of choosing which equipment we buy, not the brand of said equipment. So, <laughs> so yes. Uh, so that's that. But for example, uh, we ended up uh, in the end. We ended up more or less spending a lot of our time on the uh, on one of the maps. That in the end, for the style of more or less being a crop farmer, uh, not ideal. Uh, we ended up like also having to deal with horses, and that was not a good idea because you need to more or less go on the walk with them, or like you just go like run around on them so you can train them and when you have to do other shit during the the game you, you lose a lot of time doing that but again it's pretty uh, it's pr like as a simulator it's pretty like close to real life again i'm not a farmer so take that with a grain of salt but it feels to me pretty similar of what you have to do to be a farmer and especially because we were we were uh, trying to grow a lot of crops, a lot of that on that front. Uh, technically speaking, and even the, the game graphics, and it's not because I was running on an iMac. I've looked around; like it's not stunning. I think it's good, uh, but not so great. And I think it's indicative of the fact that this game was running on previous gen, was running on current gen, and also is running on Mac and PC. And they're trying to scale what's available on all those games. I think 
the base consoles as a lower limit of things you can buy on, on your farm so you cannot have that much equipment that much building because too much thing is in memory it was funny because when i would connect uh when we would use a, a shared server which was running on a pc of course uh when my brother would connect to the game it would say like oh limited of l- limit of <laughs> items lowered because my brother connected using the base ps4 uh, and things like that one other thing to take into consideration is that generally simulation games like that have very high cpu requirements because they have to simulate everything and if their models are the least bit realistic uh it's not trivial stuff uh yeah it's kind of realistic i i kind of discovered that overall this game is a bit of a buggy mess uh it is being patched quite frequently um i there was kind of a season pass for this year which i didn't buy but then they have a dlc now like oh my god it's a bit weird uh but from what I've seen is there has been paid DLC to just get more Brendan content. Yeah. Uh, and the DLC now is a bit of that and the, the more as the season passes to get those DLC. Like, it's a prepaid pass for the DLC mm-hmm. uh, throughout the year. Um, I think they just released the pa- Platinum DLC and my brother already bought it. Uh, like in the past few weeks, I've I played less. I was busy with other things. Again, I was hard. It was hard for me to spend nights. Literally, like like sometimes we would like start at seven p.m. and then go to bed like like one. <laughs> I'm talking about weekdays because yeah, and Yannick knows because sometimes I would ping him before going to bed. So yeah. At first, the game was a crashy mess, not only a buggy mess. Even on the Mac, um, my brother on the base PS4 would encounter like game would crash uh, and things like that. Another thing that was really not and again, I'm not following them too much, but another thing that I didn't like in 2D updates throughout the years is they fuck, the developers fucked up the in-game economy. Like, so bad. Uh, it reminds me of Nintendo lowering the interest rate on Animal Crossing just for, oh the, for the sake of it. Like, it's like, why would you do that? We're not playing online. It's like, if I find a cheap way to make fake money in a fake game, why are you pissed about it? A good example is we discovered that silage was a good way to make cheap money. We just grow grass, we let it rot, we put it in bales, and then go sell it. Um, we discovered that, and especially with other, like, we would generate a lot of wood, so we could put it to the the carpenter, and we'd give out plates, like, pallets of wooden plates. Uh, but in one of the updates they've inco- they've lowered like really 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 low like the, the the limit was really bad low the number of stored produce you can have on your map huh. so for example like, there was like 50 pallets of things so if you were producing wooden pallets literally that you could do that in one fake year like or even faster than that can you imagine having like like trailers of bales of silage. Like literally, we ended up where at some point we couldn't buy like uh, anything to grow our crops because we had so much stuff to stock, uh, stored. So that because again, there's there's uh, like real life. There's moments where you it's better for you to sell certain things at certain moment of the year because it's pricier to sell it at this point or it's better for the price uh so you would end up storing a lot of stuff 
uh, and to just dump it uh, at the right moment in the year. And so they've tweaked it, but not put it back where it used to be, which was, you can imagine, an infuriating moment for me and my brother because we spent so much time <laughs> uh, doing that. So we, And I feel those those types of tweaks you were doing in in-game economy is weird like okay you know what like where i'm playing my own farm like there's no and maybe it's my limit like a bit of tunnel vision but i don't see what's the purpose of making it harder like there's a, there's already a hard mode where it reduces the money you can get by selling your produce like that's hard mode literally the economics is just worse for you it's like Right now, when inflation time, like, you know what? Everything is expensive. Nobody wants to buy anything. That's not, I'm exaggerating a bit, but that's, there are more that you can turn on. Uh, you start with less money to stock up your farm and buy equipment. So I didn't see the purpose of doing that. And I know that was one of the main issues we encountered during this year that uh, made us enjoy this game a little bit less. I don't think anyone was expecting you, of all people, to complain about an in-game economy on this kind of show. But. Yeah, I know that this game is a first of a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, a first in a while to play uh, to play games on the Mac, uh, which was fine, I think. I don't want to go into the big tangent, but my goodness, Steam is bad. Oh, yeah. oh that doesn't change. Like, yeah. I remember having it installed, like, 10 years ago again i have a pc now and it's installed yes but like before that happening it's like we uh, we were always bitching that steam is a mess and it's still like i'm somewhat surprised that it's still a shitty mess but i guess that's that like for certain uh at some point like you i don't know why it fucked up an update and you click on the the icon for the app uh in your uh applications folder and it doesn't start and you're like why you just figure some magic incantation i i don't even remember what i did when i happened i think I, <laughs> I was able to start steam and then go in my library and then try to force the update and then poof it started the worst part of it is steam is shit but it's the least shitty of the launchers because i've used oh, epic wow. game store and epic game store is not funny oh oh wow okay Maybe it's good that I only deal, have to deal with Steam. Yeah. Uh, the other thing about Mac gaming that is interesting is I've more or less dealt with the fact that the that macOS supports the PS5, uh, the PS4 controller, excuse me. Mm. Um, but it reminded me of the funny limitation that you have on iOS, where you cannot have more than three Bluetooth devices. <laughs> So, as you may or may not remember, there's an episode about it, but I have a iMac M1, so an Apple Silicon iMac. And again, when I bought it, because of the colored uh, peripherals, I bought all the peripherals, which means the keyboard, the mouse, and the trackpad, so that I have them in yellow like my iMac. But for a lot of, th- for a, for a lot of the time, all those threes are connected to on the iMac, and... It means that the Bluetooth, the, the the PS4 controller was the fourth Bluetooth device, and I don't know why still to this day. But when that was connected, uh, the mouse cursor would like slow down like utterly bad. Like it would be like you try to move it, and it would just like jump around the screen. And again, if I were to 
turn a, a mouse off or a trackpad, like that will work. So if I go back down to three Bluetooth devices, it would just work. So to solve this, I just ended up not configuring it via Bluetooth and just like using the USB, a USB cable and using it wired in, uh, which solved the issue. And I tried to not leave it plugged in. So it's always charged uh, because I don't want to kill the battery for this, but that's that. Uh, going back to Steam 2 and hardware, I don't know why, but one day I just started the game and didn't see the controller. I was like, why? I don't know. Rebooted the computer, rebooted Steam, took a couple of a magic incantation again <laughs> uh, to make it ba- to make it work working. I don't even remember what I did. Could be a mix of, again, rebooting the computer and rebooting Steam a couple of times and it just started working again. So that was interesting. Uh, but overall... <laughs> Not sure. Will I continue to play this game? I think so, but I think I, I think I'm past my, I'm I have passed the peak time I will spend on this game. Mm. <laughs> That's funny to say after spending two hundred hours on it. Um, again, uh, I know my brother is here waiting for me to be uh, to have time off because I told him, oh, we'll play again uh, <laughs> uh, during the holiday season. Uh, but I've enjoyed my time and it allowed me and I think still allows me to to experience what a lot of people have been experiencing in the past decade, which is social video game playing. Like not the one like you mentioned uh, in your previous uh, when we were talking about uh, Super, Super Monkey Ball where people would go to somebody's house to play local multiplayer like no 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 like people nowadays either they play solo or they play just with random people but they also experience playing with friends but in the core form of their own just doing that and I was, I was never big into that scene and Farming Simulator allowed me to experience that uh, with my brother yes uh, but kind of to explore like what it means to do s- to play video game socially uh, because we more or less end up we would end up having a FaceTime audio call opened for the duration of when we were playing mm. so it would be like having a literally a phone call of four hours yeah. five hours uh, so that was time that was really interesting and that's kind of why this year I'm not doing a top four but I need to, I have a need to define what Farming Simulator is because it has defined my video game experience in 2022. And I've decided to name it my most influential video game of 2022. And I don't mean the game itself is influential, it's, it has influenced my perception of video games and how I play uh, video games. And Let's be honest, it is also a game I would have not touched if it was not even recommended by my brother and kind of him insisting a bit, oh yeah, you should play this game, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it allowed me to literally play 200 hours of this game in a blink of an eye. And that's, I can still not fathom that. There... And I wouldn't tell you, uh, just, uh, I don't know, like I played 200, 207 hours. I wouldn't be surprised. My brother is like a three fifty. Yeah, 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 oh, probably even more. Yeah, probably even more. Yeah. Uh, and all the times I told him, "Oh no, tonight I can't," or <laughs> "I have other things to do," and he's like, "Oh, I'm playing that then." Uh, yeah, he spent a lot of time too. So yeah, there there was a really good Polygon video a couple of months ago about 
uh, sort of this ongoing trend of two-screen gaming, which is like one screen will be like watching Netflix or watching YouTube or whatever, and the other screen will be like playing some game or you're doing some sort of in-game chores. And a lot of the time, like people will have voice calls in parallel with their friends or whatever, so that they're like multitasking while gaming. And it was a really interesting sort of look into why that is a growing trend in uh, gaming over the past, I'd say, five to ten years. Mm -hmm. And, like, I I think the big game that a lot of people sort of discovered that with in the last year has been Power Wash Simulator, which I've seen a lot of people get on board with. Um, Yeah, I heard of that one, too. Yeah. Uh, Farming Simulator seems somewhat more uh, mechanically complex than Power Wash Simulator, where you just wash things, although I can understand the satisfaction that comes from that. By the way, in our farm, I've insisted we needed to have a power washer. So of course. we do have a power washer to of clean course. up the tractors. Yeah, yeah. So that's really interesting. The other thing is it reminds me a lot of my heyday of almost a thousand hours in Destiny because that's more or less what I was doing, right? It, I was playing Destiny mostly socially with other people. Right. And when my community and also sort of the mechanical identity of destiny fizzled out i sort of lost interest and i think for destiny 2 all of destiny 2 since 2016 i've played less than 200 hours right which is a big fall off um i'm i actually messaged someone tonight from my old friend group to see if we can play uh destiny 2 witch queens legendary campaign over the holiday break because that is last year's expansion that i haven't played yet and i would like to play it before next year's expansion comes out in january uh so there's going to be more destiny on my plate uh with regards to that um but yeah it just reminds me of that sort of era and after a certain point, you just feel like you've done it all or that there's nowhere else to go with the game and you sort of have to go to something else. And I think that's pretty much like at the point you'll be in a couple couple dozen hours, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, it's funny because like my brother bought, like I said, the latest DLC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really focused about forestry. So like mm. literally dealing with the trees and they're chopping it down. And that's something that he enjoyed. And that I despised in this game. <laughs> um, so, and he's always saying, it, "Yeah, there's like there's a new map. It's optimized for this, but I know you don't like to do that already." So, so yeah. Uh, by the way, on a funny tangent, um, I discovered this year because of this game. I discovered why people, a lot of people, despise. Uh, uh, now I'm blanking on the name, Discord. Well, yeah, because, Discord sucks. Uh, uh, fair. Uh, and it's funny because I spent my days in Slack because of work. And then I was like, yeah, that's just a shittier Slack. Yeah. But the reason of that is at the peak of when a lot of my brother's friend was playing, I think on the rented server, we ended up being like my brother and I, so two, his friend that introduced him to this game and his girlfriend, so we're at four, this guy's brother being included five and i think somebody random too so we're at six or seven people be playing on that one farm that maybe happened for a couple of weeks not even a month i would say maybe a month uh but that was fun like they're not close friends let's put it this way but it was fun to build something together with just people like kind of 
kind of knew from a previous life let's put it this yeah. way so so yeah uh lots of new things uh i'm not sure if i'll pick up any other farming uh simulator games there was a construction simulator that i think got released <laughs> after look but i know when it was announced my brother was freaking out uh but surprisingly enough he didn't mention it recently uh but i know for sure that if when he remind when he's reminded that this game exists and now is released if i recall correctly uh that uh we might migrate to that game uh we shall see what's also really funny in terms of timing is that this was the year that we re- we reached peak farming games on the switch i don't know if you've been watching the nintendo directs this year but like the last yes. few have been like 60% farming games or games with deep farming mechanics and like watching any kind of reaction stream from like hardcore gamers is hilarious because everyone is losing their shit at how many farming games there are on their list you can't play that many farming games at once who is this marketed towards um but yeah there you go if you ever get bored right. from playing online there are a lot of farming games on the switch but those games reminded me and now I'm I'm blanking on the name. the The game that is on iOS that is something Valley, Stardew Valley, Stardew Valley. Like they're like farming simulator is like is a way different genre than those more cartoonish uh, farming game where you would do more kind of like things manually. Uh, again, the ones I recall from I don't I never played Stardew Valley. I was kind of always intrigued. But again, like you don't have tractors and things like that, and it's not the kind of more a real life simulation compared to uh, what I've heard of. Those I, games. I think they're not as dissimilar as you think. Uh, obviously, okay. like uh, the level of machinery is not quite the same, right, but sure. uh, systems wise, I think they're fairly similar. And like some of the to quote farming games that were shown during those Nintendo directs are actually like more standard rpgs with just farming mechanics right. that are in the forefront uh so it's like not a one-to-one uh match but i just thought the timing was funny <laughs> no yeah it, it, I, I echo your sentiment here but yeah um farming similar to 2022 uh farming similar to 22 my most influential video game of 2022 so it's not my number one on my game of the year time sync of the year Oh yeah, that, that's that's <laughs> officially true. <laughs> All right. So, what's your game of the year, Yannick? I have to start this with a little story. Uh oh. The week before the first COVID lockdowns hit, I started playing a game on the Vita during my commute home from work, and it was amazing. A week later, I wasn't playing it anymore because I didn't have a commute anymore, and I would have to wait a really fucking long time to get to have a commute again actually i don't have a commute again because my current job is five minutes walking distance from my office so i literally don't have a commute to play this game on anymore which is why as someone who's saving this as a commute game i sort of had to give up on that plan and start playing it this year just normally like a scrub right (laughs) and i like this game so much that i bought a second copy of the game this year a second copy yes because it was a PlayStation game that was released on Vita. And huh. there's also a reason why I wanted a second copy. And it'll make sense 
soon enough. So that game was Front Mission 3. Uh, Front Mission 3 was released in 1999 on the PlayStation. It was also made available on PlayStation Network for PSP, PS3, and PlayStation Vita. It was developed and published by Square, and there is a remake coming to the Switch in 2023, although judging by the recently released Front Mission 1 remake, it's probably going to be bad. <laughs> uh, like, Are you saying like most remake too, just in general? Not necessarily, but Square's remakes are a big coin toss. Either they are amazing or they are complete trash. And um, mm. if you're a Front Mission fan and this, and you're excited uh, by the remakes because it's the only way you can play these Front Mission games conveniently in modern times, uh, I'm sorry, the graphics are shit. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, Front Mission 3 is a strategy RPG featuring combat in giant mechs called Wanzers. Uh, I think in recent years I have uh, determined that uh, I not only that I love strategy RPGs, which you should know by now if you're a regular listener of the show, but I especially love strategy RPGs with giant robots in them. Um, and Front Mission 3 is funny because it's notably the first game in the Front Mission series that was released in the West on the PlayStation back in the day. So you couldn't actually go out and buy Front Mission 1 and 2. Uh, you had to wait until a DS part of Front Mission 1, and you still can't play Front Mission 2 in English. Uh, so, But it's fine because Front Mission 3 technically can explain the entire story of Front Mission 1 and 2 to you uh, throughout the game, and I'll get to that later. This game is absolutely massive in terms of scope because it's essentially two games in one. And that's kind of why I bought a second copy. Uh, very oh. early in the game, you are asked a completely unassuming question that you would not think would be relevant to the plot of the game at all. And depending what answer you choose, you play a completely different game than if you chose the other option. There is no overlap in missions between both branches. Each branch emphasizes different mechanics and play styles. It's crazy. And like, this is something developers did semi-regularly on the PlayStation 1. Like the other one that comes to mind is Persona 1, the Japanese version, not the English version, because they had to cut the content out of it. Persona 1 has a very similar thing where early in the game, you can take a decision that literally the entire rest of the game is completely different it's not even the same story anymore it just it takes place in the same world but it's completely a second persona game that's just in there if you know what to do uh so this is a thing people did i don't know what the deal was i don't know if they were thinking like oh shit we have all this free space left on this giant cd-rom what are we going to do with it we're going to make a second game in secret uh <laughs> wow I, I can just imagine the developer saying huh the CD-ROM is half full. What should we do? And uh, honestly, like Front Mission 3, there is so much stuff in this game that I don't understand how it fits on a single CD-ROM. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing. Like, I always thought in my head, well, of course, this is a two-disc game. And then I bought the game physically, and I was like, oh, shit, it's a one-disc game. How? <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's just weird like that. Um, Front Mission has this really cool approach to combat where the wanzers the robots have five main parts they have the body the left arm the right arm the legs and there's also the pilot so each part of the wanzer has its own pool of hp and when that uh pool of hp is depleted that part is destroyed and your individual weapons will have distinct projectile spread. So depending on your positioning, that'll determine what parts of your opponent you're going to be hitting with your damage when you attack them. And 
once a part of a robot is destroyed, the functionality that is associated with that part is disabled. So if you destroy the left arm, well, the weapon that is attached to the left arm can no longer be used because there's no more left arm. Uh, if you destroy the legs, the ones are going to no longer move on the map. If the body is destroyed, well, technically the whole mech is destroyed. You can also uh, cause uh, certain types of damage, which will eject a pilot from the Wanzer, uh, which will obviously disable the mech, although they are still on foot and can technically get back in the mech or just decide to shoot you for the hell of it on foot if they want to die. Um, you can do crazy shit, like try to force a pilot ejection on the opponent's Wanzer, get out of your own Wanzer, and get aboard theirs to capture it onto your fleet for the rest of the game. That's crazy shit you don't get to do very often in strategy RPGs. Uh, once you've captured their Wanzer, you can decide to either strip it for parts or sell it for massive amounts of cash. Uh, or you can just use it as is, I guess. I mean, the world is your oyster. At that time, though, can an enemy steal your Wanzer? Uh, I I'm honestly not sure if that if the system works both ways. I think. Hmm. At a base level, they are like the percentage chance of that happening is fairly low, but I don't know if it's impossible. Okay. I'd have to try it. Um, but yeah, like there is so much depth in all of this stuff uh, that it adds a whole new dimension to combat that is absent from most turn based strategy games. And I found it super enjoyable. Then there's the whole other part of this game, which is extremely uh, Sakurina core, which is the network feature. So this is two things that I absolutely love in video games. In games, in game versions of the internet, you can browse and interact with and mid nineties projections of what the internet will look like in the future, specifically in 2112. Whoa. Front mission three delivers big on both of these things. So at any point between missions in the game, you can go, you can choose to go onto the network, which is the in-universe internet. This is one of the most fleshed out in-game internets I've ever seen in a game that does not explicitly revolve around an in-game internet. Like the dot hat games is literally about playing an in, uh, a fictional MMO. So you're always in the internet in that game but aside from that uh it's one of the most fleshed out in-game internets i've ever seen each of the major political powers and countries implicated in the story have their own websites uh, and that's where you can read a lot of the background lore from front mission one and two which you probably haven't played if you're playing this in english because they weren't released yet uh so you can get all of that uh, certain sections of the websites are password protected but you can find the passwords in the game, uh, so you just have to go looking for them in various places. Uh, you can come into contact with various hacker groups or get your computer taken over by ransomware, which, like, ransomware didn't really exist as a notion in 1999. That It wasn't, like, something commonplace that people could be like, oh, yeah, let's put ransomware in the game. No, it was just, like, something they sort of imagined would happen, and yes, it kind of did. Uh, <laughs> kind of? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you can use e-commerce websites to obtain mech parts and upgrades for your Wanzers. You can exchange messages with in-game NPCs over email. You can <laughs> read discussion forums that update after each mission. You can, of course, you can customize your computer's wallpaper and go download additional wallpapers on the internet because that's what everyone loves to do with their computer in the 90s. And, and then accidentally download a ransomware? 
that would be a great twist uh i don't know if that's how it plays out but it would be great um I found a text dump of all of the text that is in this in-game fictional internet. There are 5,500 words of completely optional lore you can read on this fictional internet. And the thing is, like, as as you know, dear listener of the show, I'm not usually too invested in video game narratives. But I'm a sucker <laughs> like anybody else. If you convey it to me in a largely optional mid-90s fake internet, it suddenly becomes a lot more tempting to immerse myself in that world's events. Oh my god. Oh my god. Wow. The quote wow. network is an entire conduit for non-combat side quests to find out more about the characters and the inhabitants of this world. And it's mind-blowing. I can just imagine that all games stories now needs to be a fake 90s <laughs> just internet f- browser. J- just put a fucking WAP browser on that tablet you have yeah. in PLA and I'm just going to play Pokemon's <laughs> Legend Arceus. <laughs> well, but the, the funny part, it's not a tablet. It's, it's, just a, it's a phone? No. Wait, You're, it's It's too old to be that. I, I remember reading a tweet somewhere that you actually... Like, there, the, Arceus oh, li- literally acknowledges your smartphone at some point in the game. Yeah, because, oh yeah, because you, you do have that. That's the only thing that you keep from the current times. Yeah. And I think it's kind of, like, embedded by it or something like that. Oh, no, I think it rings a bell. But yeah, I was mixing up with the fact that the Pokédex is a, a bunch of books. Yeah, just put a WAP browser on there and I, I'm sold. I will okay, go read Pokémon okay. WAP all day. <laughs> Pokemon WAP, oh my goodness. <gasps> oh wow, I was not expecting you to say, like, after te- saying multiple times during this episode, saying, I don't care about story, be like, oh my god, I care about story. Wow. Yes, but you can browse a map of the internet in 3D. Oh my goodness. Oh, okay, let's continue because I- I'm sure we'll spend the next 30 minutes talking about that. So, so naturally, as you can assume from that last section, the presentation in this game is top notch. Um, I think like realistically, like I know the listeners of this podcast, like I know you haven't played Front Mission Second because it was never released in English. I did play a bit of it this year. And me- while huh. mechanically it holds up, graphically it is very, very difficult to go back to. It is very much like the team's first PlayStation 1 game and it shows and it definitely looks like they took the UI from the Super Famicom Front Mission 1 and they slapped it onto very primitive PS1 3D graphics and they sort of tried to sell it as a game and it's very rough. Uh, It's a fun game, but it's very rough. Uh, Front Mission 3 reworks a lot of the UI to be far more usable and the team clearly had a lot more time to get used to the PS1 and 3D graphics. Meanwhile... Other teams at Square were working miracles on 1999 bangers like Final Fantasy VIII and Racing Lagoon. Uh, The next year, they would put out Vagrant Story, which is, like, fucking ridiculous in terms of PS1 graphics. Um, So, like, they really figured their shit out uh, (laughs) between Front Mission 2nd and Front Mission 3, and it shows in this game. It looks absolutely fantastic in motion, and combat has a very satisfying impact to it that, like that's what gets you addicted to turn-based strategy games a lot of the time it's like does it feel satisfying when you hit someone and the sounds that it makes and the gauges going down for the hp and all that stuff like all of that is very measured and 
uh, Front Mission 3 absolutely nails it. So this game is absolutely phenomenal. I know why so many strategy RPG fans held this game so highly uh, in their own personal best strategy RPG lists. And I completely stand by that. Uh, so right now I have like my Vita save, which is on one branch of the story. And I have my PS1 save, which is on the other branch of the story. So if I ever feel like it, I can just bounce back and forth between those things. And yeah, I was really shocked at how different the two branches felt. Uh, it was, it, I, I mean, uh, like the, the comparison point I'll pull out is Fire Emblem Fates, which kind of did this, but not really, uh, at the start of the game, you were asked if you wanted to go with sort of your blood family or adoptive family. I'm oversimplifying. Um, and each of those were a separate game. So you could get uh, Fire Emblem Fates Birthright and Fire Emblem Fates Conquest, sort of a, the Pokemon model. But you could buy the other game as DLC for the game that you bought. It was a very strange thing. So th hmm. the first thing to note there is that no one is doing this in a post DLC world. Like you can't make a game that's right. two games in one anymore, or you have to become more creative with it, like near automata. And the games did have some mechanical differences, but here it's really like, like in, in the case of Fire Emblem Fates, I think a lot of the design changes were in the maps themselves, how the maps played out or how the mission objectives were different. Here, the mission objectives and the maps, well, the, map, the maps are sometimes the same because you're just playing different events that happen at different times in the same locations. Uh, but the, the, the units are, are placed differently and stuff like that. And really, it seems more like the AI behaves differently between the two routes, which is really strange. Like, in one route, I'll see units that surrender all the time. They just get out of their unit and run away. And I just have this mech sitting there with no one in it. And I'm like, oh, well, that was easy. And, like, on the other one, like, no, they're never getting out of their mech. They will fight you until you are dead. Um, and the, there's just weird behavioral differences between the two routes that I find really fascinating. Because it's not really something you see. A lot of the time you see, like, one AI routine that's used for the entire game. And then bosses have a slightly different one. Here it's like the branches of the story seem to have different AI routines, which is really interesting. So I don't know. This game really stimulated my brain uh, a lot this year. And I think you should check it out if you are, have an interest in strategy RPGs or giant robots fighting giant robots. So that does it for my top four. I also asked our listeners to write in with some thoughts about the games they played this year. So I have a few uh, notes here uh, that I want to go through, starting off with our friend of the show, Richard. Uh, so they wrote in earlier today uh, saying that Tunic was a true surprise, the pleasure of, of exploration and finding things out for yourself in a package of pure retro Japanese import game, Zelda Souls-like. Uh, yeah, I've heard a lot of praise about Tunic this year. It's it's hard to talk about the game without spoiling it. It has a lot of interesting uh, mechanical stuff that it does to teach the player how to play the game, let's say. Um, hmm. And it, it, let's say it has a very interesting tutorial. Um, I can't go more into detail than that without spoiling anything. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it definitely looked like a Zelda fan game. It looks a little bit like the... Uh, Zelda Link to the uh, Link's Awakening remake that that came out a couple years ago. Right? And I think it's sort of 
well, Tunic was announced long before that game, so it's not like a ripoff of that style or anything, but it's the same visual kind of style as that game. But it really pushes a lot of hardcore gamer buttons in ways that I don't think anyone was expecting, and it has resonated with a lot of hardcore gamers this year. Next up on Richard's list is Train Sim World 3. Uh, the game added dynamic weather and one of their favorite routes in the country, which is London to Ashford on high speed one. Uh, and yeah, it, it seems like a really cool train sim game where you can just be a user of the train network and just walk around stations and jump on trains, uh, which is not really something that uh, more arcade-like train sims have. And Richard's last game on their list is Genshin Impact. Uh, which I am surprised by because I think uh, I saw Richard tweet about it maybe once or twice this year, and I didn't really remember <laughs> that they were playing it. Uh, so their notes here, uh, Genshin Impact is obviously inspired by Zelda Breath of the Wild, but has plenty of non-derivative ideas. As far as gotcha games go, it's nowhere as penny-pinching as some I've heard about, and it's a great game on its own. Exploration is handled excellently with you frequently feeling like you found your own path through uncharted territory to reach civilization on the other side. I'm just going to say straight up, like I'm not interested in the core game of Genshin Impact. However, I must qualify this. Genshin Impact in the last few weeks has gotten an in-game trading card game, which is apparently very good, uh, called... I don't even remember what it's called. It's something really weird, like Genius Invocation, I think is the name of the trading card game. And strangely enough, uh, because the base game is a gotcha game where you have to essentially gamble on loot boxes to get the characters you like, I expected the card game was be- would be more of the same, but it appears to have completely deterministic ways of getting all the cards in the game, which is really weird uh, and unexpected. The problem with it is you actually have to complete the story of Genshin Impact until now with all of the added quests and stuff so basically like 50 hours of content to get to the card game and i'm not interested in playing 50 hours of genjin impact to get to the card game which is unfortunate um so yeah it's kind of like final fantasy 14 in that respect where if you want to get to the good part you have to play just 350 hours and get to a (laughs) hard sell um but thanks richard for your thoughts on those games uh next up i have some thoughts from maddie uh so I'm reading from the notes here. Uh, my personal nominees are probably between Peglin and Vampire Survivors for kickstarting my current obsession with roguelites that seem to have come a few years later than a few people I know. Yeah, he played some more, but the best executed of the roguelites that he played this year was Hades, which also has gotten a lot of critical acclaim in the last few years. Uh, Peglin is a game that uh, jumped out at me because I had been researching roguelites as well recently. And Peglin is essentially uh, Peggle with deck building elements, which is really interesting to me because I will play literally anything that has a card in it. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, the only problem with Peglin for me is that it's on Steam only right now, and I have a hard time playing PC games. Even though I have access to a PC, I just I can't motivate myself to actually play PC games because they're on a PC. Uh, similarly, Vampire Survivors is also a big game that a lot of my friends have been playing this year, which is... Uh, actually, have you heard about Vampire Survivors at all? Nope. 
Okay, Vampire Survivors is a game where you basically just walk around a map and collect power-ups that shoot more and more bullets outside of you, and you kill enemies that get you more juice to power up your character, and then you get more power-ups and more upgrades, and then you shoot more bullets. And you, at the end uh-huh. of the game, basically, you just stand there and shoot bullets everywhere, and everything dies. And it's just... <sighs> I think there was okay. a there was a rumor that this game was developed by someone who used to work in the slot machine industry because it has all of the things that slot machines have to make you completely addicted to this game that sounds absolutely stupid if I describe it to you as is. And everyone who heard that description and thought this game is fucking stupid and then went to play it has become irreparably addicted to this game. So it works. Hmm. Okay. It also came out on mobile two days ago. Hmm. But yes, a lot of people I know have been absolutely obsessed with Vampire Survivors and just play it whenever the fuck they can. Uh, and I think Maddie may have gotten a Steam Deck entirely for Vampire Survivors, which is kind of weird. But anyway, I, I love Maddie. I'm not going to trash talk my friend here. Uh, and uh, last but not least here, uh, we have Canon, who provided a list of games. Um there are quite a few games on here. Uh, the entire Kirby mainline series. Yes, I, I can vouch by that. Dungeon Encounters, which I have heard a lot of positive things about this game, but I just can't register such a generic phrase as being a game in my head. Like when I first saw the name Dungeon Encounters as a thread title on select button, I thought it was just a generic thread about like good dungeon encounters in video games. No, that's the name of the game. Um so I'll have to check that out. It doesn't look like really a kind of game that I'd be into, so I don't know much about it. Uh, Rune Factory 4 is one of those uh, farming games that we were talking about earlier. Uh, Driver San Francisco. I, I honestly, I, I haven't been reading Twitter as much, so I don't know very much about the next few games. Uh, SteamWorld Dig 2, Citizen Sleeper, Vampire Survivors again, and I guess I have to address it now, Fortnite Zero Build. So... I don't know if this has been happening to your friends, but this year is the year that Fortnite has finally managed to get a lot of people to weaken to it by removing building from the game. Oh. There is no more building in Fortnite. Okay. And a lot of people who complained about the existence of building in Fortnite decided to go check it out again. And a lot of my friends, an embarrassing amount of my friends have become obsessed with playing Fortnite, and it's kind of depressing me. Right, so if you remove building, it's just... It's just a third-person battle royale with cartoony graphics and Goku and all of the MCU and Master Chief and John Wick, and I don't know all of these pop culture shit that people like, but they're all in Fortnite. Ah, I see. And uh, when I try to confront my friends and tell them, like, how can you play something so aesthetically repulsive that is just, like, walking advertisements for other pop pop culture things, they're like, but it's funny. And I'm like, okay, well, I have lost here. Humanity is fucked. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But there you go. Um, I couldn't get out of this episode without trash talking the Fortnite players a little bit. Uh, But thank you once again to our listeners for letting us know what games they played this year. Uh, Next year, maybe we'll be less mean. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'll be less mean. Okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay, 2023 preview. Uh, Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You haven't talked in a while. I can go first. Um, I looked at... uh, 
even if I didn't play too much games, and I still have a couple, I I still have a wish list in most console that I do own, and I looked at the list of games I um I've been recommended uh, that. Uh, I will try to play. Uh, I think one recent example is from a Yannick recommendation. So it's you recommending me. is 13 Sentinel. Saying yes. that uh, you can't say much about this game, but that I will enjoy it. You can find out more about it on next year's Game of the Year episode. If I play it. Or you've played it. That's why. You... Oh, yeah, that's true. You, yeah, you're I'm being... basically like 40% in. Okay, so it, it... Oh, fuck. So it does mean I need to play it if I don't want to get spoiled. Well, I'll probably just say the same thing I said to you to pitch it to people because I'm not going to spoil the game and the thing Fair. that tells you to play the game. Play 13 Sentinels, people. Uh, another game that piqued my interest uh, and it's from a friend uh, and she was re- she was saying, oh, recently I've been playing uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. And I was like, really? Because it doesn't fit their build. But she... The way she was explaining how she would just like go hunt in the wild and just doing that, it was kind of like, huh, I'll, maybe it's I should look into this game. So it's one of those other games I have in my list. But ignoring that, and now also have to add um, Star Wars Jedi Survivor, the new game, I kind of realized that I don't have that much next-gen titles. And it is the time of the year where I'm not considering, but like time of the year where I was like, is it a good time to consider buying a new console? Uh, Yannick, you did that last year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's last year, right? Uh, well, it was and... early this year. It was like January, February. True, yeah. When I got so the new job. You got a new job, yeah, I remember. And um, I kind of realized that with me not playing too much games, I'm not sure if it will change in 2023. Plus, uh, the PS5 has been hard to get for the last two years. Um, and it seems not to change, even if Sony says, oh, it's going to be in stock everywhere now. But we shall see. I'm not sure if buying a PS5 just to experience PS4 Pro games, because again, I still have a base PS, a base ps4 from 2015 2016 i forgot when the ps4 launched but 2014 okay then that means 2016 because about two years after launch uh i'm not sure if i'll do that like to be honest right now the two games i know or maybe three because strong suggestion on ratchet and clint for you but i have like marvel spider-man miles morales which everybody says you should play on the ps5 if you have a ps5 uh, and then I would, at some point, have Star Wars uh, Jedi when that gets released. And knowing me, I'm lazy, and I know that I might not play it in March, so I'm not willing to buy it in March so that it gets cheaper. So, yeah. Uh, I more or less end up into a position like, I'm not sure what I'll do with the PS4. And I'm more on the side of it just being my main console than changing it to be honest um so so yeah so we shall see what's gonna happen there uh not that the ps5 is not enticing but again i'm not sure it will be enticing for what just uh, no it will be enticing just to get a new gadget and these days that's not uh what i want 
quickly coming back on Farming Simulator 22. Uh, I'm not sure yet if where I'll be uh, if in six months from now, if I'll still be playing it or not. Uh, we shall see. But that's kind of the quick summary of how I see things in the next few years. Uh, in, in the next year, I think I'll focus on people's recommendation. Like, I think that's what happened literally this year. Uh, and a little bit less last year. And I've found games I would, that were not typically for me, but that I've greatly enjoyed. Uh, so maybe that's what I'll start doing is just like figure out games that people recommend and try to figure out because I don't think I have that good of a sense like you said you has you have that like oh I see a game I see 10 15 minutes of it and I know if I'll enjoy it or not but try to build that so that if I have a limited set of hours <coughs> 200 hours uh yeah. in a year to play games uh maybe I should try to make it uh, not mainly focus on one game let's put it this way that's interesting uh, because it kind of ties into my um, preview for 2023. So I have three main points for 2023 I want to do. So the okay. first one is to commit to games more. Uh, you hmm. played a single game for 200 hours. I think the most I have played a single game this year is technically Gran Turismo 7, which is weird, uh, considering I didn't really like it. Uh, but I've played <laughs> that for about 40 hours total. Uh, okay. So... That is about as much as I put into a single game. I think second place is probably my ongoing 13 Sentinels playthrough. Is just, I didn't play it before October, so it's not valid for this game, uh, for this right. game of the year episode. Um, so in calendar year 2022, like I've been putting less than 20 hours into most games. And I think like my talent, if you go look at my backloggery, is to play games up to 30% ish. And then changing to another game because I have too many games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've simul- seen that. Simultaneously, I also feel like I don't have enough games because that is just how I roll. Um, but yeah, there there are games like uh, one of the games that I definitely want to commit to playing this year is Dragon Quest Seven, which is a game that I have been curious about for probably close to 10 years. And it is a game that has a like base playtime of probably somewhere around 130 hours which is a lot of time and i just want to try to chip away at it throughout the entire year i am curious about yakuza 7 which is which is the newest game in the yakuza series at the current moment and it takes place in Yokohama and I haven't been to Yokohama in a very long time. And it literally takes place in the neighborhood where I usually stay in Yokohama. Ooh. Like I've been on that street for like a non-negligible amount of hours of my life. Uh, so I am very curious to see how it portrays that neighborhood and how it deals with sort of the the neighborhood issues, let's say, uh, with regards to the Yakuza's role in that neighborhood and the sex industry and all of that stuff. So I, out of curiosity, I really want to play more of Yakuza 7, and that's what I'm sort of playing on PS5 right now. Uh, I want to finish 13 Sentinels. I have other games that I am curious about or would like to get deeper into because I've played a certain amount of them, and I think that they are going to be worth my time. And so this year, instead of having, uh, or in 2023, instead of having, let's say, 20 games or 30 games that I've played to about 30% in all of them, 
I want to have a smaller number of maybe like a dozen games uh, that I focus around and then I'll pick my top four out of that instead of having like a much wider range. And I don't, I don't know how successful I'll be in that because like to some degree I'm trying to do that every year and I'm failing. Um, Are you though? Because I kind of remember, I forgot it was last year or two years ago where you didn't mention wanting to play more games. A couple of years ago, I had a list at the end of the year of like 55, 60 games that I had rated throughout the year. And for the last two I've had, because the last two I've been keeping better track of it because I know I'm doing these episodes every year, I've stuck around 20 to 22 games that I've sort of made 30% progress-ish throughout the year. And I usually beat like one or two. And like this year, I'm trying to like juice up the amount of completion I'm doing in each of those games and playing less games to the 30% point, if that makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, the other point is sort of something we've already addressed when I was talking about like having that game literacy and knowing what games I actually want to play is to be more selective in what games I want to play. And I think like I have this whole spreadsheet system just to help me choose which games I want to play. <laughs> so it's like you shouldn't be surprised. Um, but like one of the things I've mentioned recently to people with big backlogs on select button is uh you can do a lot of things by playing a game to a certain point, rating them, and then essentially abandoning everything below a certain threshold. And for me, uh, it used to be like anything below three stars, I would just stop playing it and decide it was not worth my time. And this year, I'm trying to be more honest about that reality. And I'm saying anything below four stars, I'm probably Mm. not going to play those games realistically. Uh, so I should stop pretending that I'm going to put effort into them and just abandon them altogether. I'm frequently going into my games list and seeing like which of these things are not speaking to me anymore and I'm just removing them. And I think there's a lot of things you can do on many but not all platforms to try and hide away or reduce the organizational burden that games that you don't intend to play put on you when you're trying to browse your game library. Um, like I've stopped redeeming all of the PS plus games because if I know already that there are games that I do not care about one bit, I just won't redeem them because I don't want to have that icon take place in my library everywhere. Um, so that's sort of the kind of thing I'm trying to do. And the the last point in 2043 is I would like to compete in tournaments more frequently. I, I would like to do one tournament a week, every week for the year. I'm not sure that i'll be able to pull it off because sometimes i'm busy um but like that's at least my goal uh is to try to at least participate in a tournament uh every week for the week for the whole year and if there are weeks that it doesn't happen then no big deal but i just want to see how many i can actually partake in and uh combine that with the fact that it's very likely that this year will be a big year for fighting games. Uh, Street Fighter mm. 6 comes out in June, and it's seeming highly probable that Tekken 8 is also coming out sometime this year as well, and maybe even a Virtua Fighter. Wow. So it's like it's stacked year, and that's without counting other developers who have not said anything about their games, maybe. Uh, so it, it could be a very stacked year for fighting games and... I don't know. I just want to stop sucking at fighting games. And I feel like the only way to stop (laughs) sucking at fighting games is to play them more. And the best way to play them more is to play in tournament every week. 
in yeah. my mind anyway. So uh, I'm going to try to do that. And maybe we can have an episode where I talk about the training arc and sucking less at fighting games. Hey, in like anything you want to be better at, you need to practice and practice and practice. Yeah, but practicing on your own sucks, though. It's more fun to just oh. play the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but again, like participating in, in tournament, I, I, yeah, for me, it is considered practicing for video games. Right? Let me just so. go count up how many tournaments I've participated in this year because I have a list on my website. Oh, you make lists about everything. Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, so 2022. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. So I have 10 on my list right now, and I'm in another one tomorrow. Okay, so, so you maybe achieve 12, 15? 11 for 2022 right now. I don't think I'll be participating in any after this week. Uh, okay. But yeah, so 12 is not bad for one year right uh, and i guess maybe not that i since you know that maybe once a week is going to be a bit like you're, you're at 11 so it we're going from 11 to 52 so maybe saying just doubling the amount of thermal is going to be a good first task or first goal so from 11 to 22 or not 52 I think I'm just going to try to do it every week and okay. see how far I get if I get burnt out or whatever. The other thing is, like, I never said all of them have to be for the same game. I can switch games from True. time to time. Like, the the 11 that I counted there were across all of the games that I played this year in tournament and not just all in one game. Right. Okay. Makes sense. So that pretty much does it for me. Good. So you'll be able to find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 196-196. You can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. This week, I've decided that I would like to promote my Mastodon account. So you Yay. can find me on Mastodon at mastodon.social slash at Luco, L-U-C-C-O. And you can find Yannick at, or I guess whatever you'd like to promote this yeah, week. You've got the notation wrong. You, you're supposed to say Luco at uh, Mastodon.social. No, 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 no. I don't believe in that. And those <laughs> oh links work. They work on the web. I tried them before. I know you would bitch about them. So that's why I wrote them this way. I even wrote yours that way. And they work. You put it in the browser and they work. So I don't know if they work by search, but to me, they are so simpler this way. URL of the host or URL of the instance slash your username with an ad symbol. So simple. Okay, well, I'm going to say it with the correct notation, which is I am at Sakarina at icosahedron.website, which is terrible fucking server name. <laughs> that I, it, look, your reward for figuring out how to spell it is to follow me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that's good so happy holidays to everyone and we'll see you in 2023 on exactly january 15th see you next year